What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. We made this. And welcome to The Time Is Now, Silent Green Is People. I am your host, Kurt North. I introduce to you for the second week running, Darren Mooney. Hello, Darren. How are you doing today, mate? I'm good. How are you, Kurt? I'm not too bad. I've had a short day at work, so it's not been too bad, as we're still in this COVID-19 situation. But uh, it's a glorious sunny day. I've, I decided that I'll take a few hours off oh, and good. go for a little walk around my work, which is right in the Lake District up in Cumbria. And uh, beautiful day. Uh, nice, nice to be able to get out into the fresh air and uh, enjoy. Uh, pretty lonesomely though, because it's it's in the middle of nowhere, but not a walking area. So I've enjoyed that today. So it's been great. It's probably perfect for it then as well, and and the most yeah. social distancing as well. That, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So you, I, I literally didn't see a soul for a good twenty five minutes. So it was it was nice to get to get out because I have been really busy of late and. Um, you know, just to have some, some, just some time to yourself, and actually some time to the elements as well was really, really nice. And instead of going home, work, home, work, yeah, Kurt, <laughs> um, I can't so. imagine having any time to myself. What, what would that be like? I wonder. I wonder. Well, if you, if, if you're pretty much under house arrest, then... <laughs> I have nothing but time to myself. <laughs> um, yeah, so you're back after last week. Last week was owls, um, and this week we're continuing on with roosters. And that was the 16th episode of the second season of Millennium. It aired on the 13th of March, 1998. It's directed by Thomas J. Wright and was written by Glenn Morgan and James Wong. Who else? Let's dive straight into it then. IMDb rating, Darren. Last week, if if, if you recall, I'm hoping you don't, we had a rating. It was... Um, 8.1-ish, I think, was it? No, or was I it lower? It, it was around, I think it was 8, from oh, what okay. I remember. Bearing that in mind, how? what do you think... Roosters should score both in your reasoning and, of course, on the IMDb. What do you think that of Roosters overall as well? Okay, well, let's start with the IMDb score because I can be wrong about that, so that's fine. And it's great. I think I messed up last week as well, so it gives me a bit more leeway. I think I vastly overestimated uh, people's tastes in assuming that they love owls as much as any sane person should. So I've learned from my mistake. I know it's going to be around eight. I know it's going to be around the same score. I know the critical consensus on Roosters, uh, looking at things like, say, the AV Club reviews, looking at things like Paul Vitaris' reviews, looking at things like Rob Sherman's sort of guide to the X-Files and 1013 Productions. The consensus is that Roosters is a little bit weaker than Owls, and we'll we'll talk about that in a moment. I'm wondering, does that carry to fandom? So I'm going to go with a 7.9. You are point one out. It is eight. Oh, it's exactly the same. Ah, nice. It's exactly the same. Uh, my understanding is exactly the same. I'm just going to double check my own scores now. Da, 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 da. I got eight as well. Oh, yes, cool. So, so they are even. 
Oh, nice. E- even across the board, yes. So what do you think to Millennium as a whole, as a two-parter, if you're in the 1013 universe, where would you put where, where would you put this in in the the 1013 um, sort of library really or canon at the the mm. very very top? I mean, again, you know, I I love Millennium. I've described the second season of Millennium as one of my favorite twenty odd episode seasons of television ever. I think it's up there in terms of the third season, of the X Files, the eighth season, of the X Files. It's it's probably a bit it's higher than the contemporary fifth season, of the X Files. I would argue as well. Um, it's one of my favorite seasons of television ever. And I mean, Owls and Roosters is a large part of that. I think, being honest, one of the other two parters that would beat it is probably the season finale, which is arriving later on. Last week, yep. I gave Owls a 10. This week, I'm going to give Roosters a 10. The whole two-parter gets a 10. So it's very much up there. Is it better than Nicey and 731? Maybe. I'm not entirely sure. I, you know, I don't want to hedge one way or the other. There's, there's room in my heart for lots of these. I think it is probably a bit weaker than, you know, the four horse, Fourth Horseman and The Time Is Now the two-parter that ends the season but I, I think it's spectacular i think it's amazing it's one of the best things that 10 13 have ever ever done and yeah we'll get into talking about why that is in, in a moment but it is for me one of the best things that the chris carter glenn morgan james wong have ever been involved in i mean i, I raved last week that i had never seen anything like this two-parter and rewatching it again it's very much the case. I'm watching it now in the era of peak television, an era where we're kind of conditioned to expect television to be ambitious and boundary pushing and experimental. And, and it absolutely is. I mean, you know, I'm not going to pretend the second season of Millennium airing in Fox in, you know, 1997 and 1998 did anything as ambitious as, say, the eighth episode of Twin Peaks The Return by David Lynch. But I, no. I yeah, but I, I do think that it was doing stuff that was incredibly out there for a network procedural in the context of the late 90s. And being frank, still is. Um, you know, I mean, I watched an episode of Westworld recently, the, the fifth episode of the third season, and a lot of the commentary around that was like, well, this is very different from what Westworld normally does. And it is in terms of format, because it, it opens with a character narrating, it features extensive flashbacks, it has this kind of meditation on cause and effect, on choice and an individual kind of like life story in a way the show doesn't normally do, and in a way that, you know, an episode of television in the 90s would have been odd to do. But looking at something like that, and I say this as somebody who adores Westworld, I watched Owls and Roosters again today, and I was like, my mind is still blown by this you know 20 what 23 24 years sorry 22 23 years after the fact which is just astounding it's an incredible accomplishment i, I would agree i, I think that for, for me you, you're right as far as i'm concerned 731 nicey and the nsrz trilogy and this are my favorite three but um you know episodes of of television uh, as a two-parter I, I wouldn't necessarily include one breath because i think that's separate yeah. To um to the show because the the abduction arc is divided up with three, which we went through the X Quest quarantine rewatch recently, and um I was trying to def- my best to defend three as much as possible. But uh, were you the loneliest were, number? I, I I was one of the loneliest numbers. Yeah, I wasn't wasn't just the only number, um, unfortunately. So, but um but yeah, so I did try and defend it. But I do think that um, as I say, the ninety seven thirty one. And the Anasazi trilogy for me, and including this and the time is now um, two parter, which we won't get into because we'll talk about that at the end of the season. Are uh, by far my favourite part, um, double parters in in the show and in this show and the X Files run. I think it's it really is incredible. Uh, and we was talking off air there just about you say yourself saying about watching the um, the episode again, and I I did that today. And uh, I just forgot, I'd forgotten just how much I love this episode. And it's so different from likes of Night Nicey and 731 that 
you know it's it just it's just an incredible piece of television and there's so much here that i even I even forgot about which um not just little things that i wouldn't necessarily think about in general when thinking about the episode but you know that informs like the time is now for example let's let's talk a, a bit more about the episode itself before we um dive deeper into it rather than just uh you know just sort of look at the wider canvas what do you think overall with the compare compared to last week and then this week how this episode compares um both sides of that and um as a second part of a two part story what do you what do you make to roosters Rewatching Owls and Roosters kind of like so many years after seeing it for the first time and seeing it as part of my last rewatch. And I think my last rewatch was about five years ago. And so seeing it again, because, um, you know, generally if I'm watching an episode of The Sexiest Millennium, I'll go back and I'll watch, say, Jose Chung's Doomsday Defense. I'll watch The Mikado. I'll maybe, you know, watch the, the finale. Owls and Roosters is kind of this thing where it's, I love it so much that I'm almost afraid to go back to it unless I have to. Because, you know, that thing where you're worried you might discover that it's not as great as you remember. So you want to hold on to the memory of it. Spoiler, it is as good as I remembered it being. But going back to this time, what really struck me about it was that it has what might be described as as narrative accelerationism, uh, in effect. And this is a a term, it's a critical term, um, that I think I can trace its roots back to the work of Elizabeth Sandifer, who is a writer, she writes a great deal about pop culture, and she writes about Doctor Who, and she looks at the history of Doctor Who from, you know, the 50, the debut with William Hartnell through to the present day uh, with Jodie Whittaker. And what she termed uh, narrative accelerationism, uh, she identified as something that happened around the turn of the millennium. And you start seeing it with the writer uh, Stephen Moffat would be kind of where she would have discussed the context of it. And that, that doesn't really matter because what the theory is, uh, what the argument is, is that like basically as we reach the millennium, audiences and storytellers became increasingly narratively literate. Um, and again, this is something that I think Paul Schrader has talked about. He wrote an article in The Guardian about this as well. And the idea was that when Schrader was writing Taxi Driver, he would assume that the average audience member watching Taxi Driver had seen maybe 3,000 hours of media in their life, you know, because television mm. wasn't really that, you know, it was it was ingrained and entrenched, but it was still primarily prime time. And, you know, people came home and it was just on in the background. And you went to the cinema. You did go to the cinema quite regularly, but you didn't go, you know, almost every day and you didn't have streaming services. You didn't have home media. You know, you didn't have the access that you have now. Schrader was saying that, you know, 20 years later, you know, you have to assume that that generation has seen 30,000 hours of television because they have home media, they've got tapes, they've got more channels on television, they've got a constant stream of kind of television coming right at them. So they've consumed more media and more storytelling than their parents had. And then you jump 20 years forward in time again, and that takes us close to the present day when Trader was writing, and you have to assume that they've seen somewhere in the region of 70,000, 80,000 hours of television or media just in general. And that, that doesn't include, you know, film and television, that includes things like, for example, YouTube and the internet. And the internet is kind of very important here. And we mentioned it last week when we talked about owls, because you do have that sense of like internet napophenia and that sense of when you're browsing the internet, clicking through articles. You joked last week about the, the enthusiasm of Frank clicking that button. And I think that's entirely intentional. Like you go back a couple of weeks and you have the Mikado, which is very much as a story literally about the internet and about how the internet works and about like this idea of kind of modern technology and the influx of information, the way that affects us. So what you have is you have a generation of people. And again, this would have been around the time this was airing in the late 90s you had the internet coming into people's homes for the first time you had the breakdown of the you know the the 
three media, the three channels that used to have, you know, ABC, NBC and um, CBS. You now had Fox breaking in there as well. You had cable coming into the market. You had more entertainment options coming through as well. You had this idea of people having access to more media than they had ever had before, access to more stories than they ever had before. And so working out how stories are told and how stories work. And what the theory of narrative accelerationism is, is basically because people are that literate. And it's much more the case today where people have been watching YouTube videos, where people watch like Let's Play videos, where you're watching somebody playing a video game in a speed run, for example, or where you're watching YouTube videos of a critic discussing something that you've never seen in a very quick, very accelerated fashion. Or if you're watching TikTok, where somebody's taking a story and reducing it down to about a minute or 30 seconds worth of footage, for example. But even Vine, where the idea is that you boil a story down to its essence and tell it in a series of beats and the audience is expected to be able to process that in a very you know coherent manner from what's basically a bullet point summary and what narrative acceleration does and i'll come back to why you know i'm thinking about this in the context of owls in a moment what it does is it assumes that the audience understands the way in which a story is told you understand the patterns and the logic of how a story is structured so if i say superhero origin you know the beats of a superhero origin there's probably a dead parent There's probably an interaction with something that gives a person superpowers. Or maybe they just get a lot of money. There's a trauma that serves to motivate them. There's an icon that they embody. And then there's a supervillain that they have to defeat. And then they become themselves and they integrate. And that's the hero's journey. And again, if you've seen a superhero movie, you know that flow. And the idea is that, you know, audiences understand how these stories work. So as you're telling these stories you don't need to fill in all the details and hit all of the beats as thoroughly or as carefully or as hard as you would if they weren't familiar. If you were telling somebody a superhero origin for the first time, you would have to be very detailed. If you're telling a superhero origin to them for, I don't know, like the 25th time in the modern Marvel Cinematic Universe, you can safely say, you know how this works, right? And then get down to the business. And again, if you want to pick a couple of examples of this, in the work of Stephen Moffat, the the first season finale of Sherlock, which is basically, it's an episode of television that's 90 minutes long, but it's actually six different stories told incredibly quickly. And those six stories are told incredibly quickly because as an audience member, you know how a mystery works. So you don't need to get all of the details. You just need to know how this particular mystery deviates from the template of other mysteries that you've been told, what the new details are. Or to pick another example more recently in cinema, think of things like, say, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, where you have six different superhero origin stories told in a two-hour movie. And again, you can see it very much in the way that it's told. Let's do this one last time. And by the time you hit the sixth iteration of that, it's quite literally a bullet point. You know, oh, I'm not a person, I'm a pig. Uh, I, was, yeah. I, I was a spider who was bitten by a radioactive pig instead of a pig that was bitten by a radioactive spider. And also, I like animal puns. And that's all you need to know in order to get my origin. Otherwise, it's exactly the same as every other superhero origin you've ever heard. And why I'm thinking about that in the context of owls and roosters is because when we were talking about this off air, we were discussing how we were going to talk about the episode. And you said... There's so much here. It is so incredibly dense that the only way to do it is to go pretty much scene by scene through it. And it's notable that one of the criticisms of uh, Roosters, and, you know, I don't think this is a fair criticism. I think it's an accurate criticism. I think in that it it reflects what the episode is, but I think the criticism doesn't reflect why the episode is the way that it is. But the criticism is that Roosters is basically just exposition. It's a lot of characters saying things telling the audience what's happening, sitting in meetings with other characters, telling them things, rather than showing. 
And again, we're going to talk about these in a, in a bit more depth in a moment. But like to give a couple of examples, you have a lot of big things that happen off screen. The murder of Jim Ford, for example, happens entirely off screen. Or, you know, the, the discussion that they have about the nature of the kind of secular millennium that the owls are worried about is just an info dump that's given by Laura in the middle of a scene that's about a whole bunch of other stuff. And it's just casually dropped in there. And the audience is expected to just kind of process that information as quickly as possible. You have the old man giving his backstory. You have the overlapping origin of Odessa that kind of arrives about 10 to 15 minutes from the end. That's kind of dumped there as if it's you're meant to go as an audience. Oh, that makes perfect sense. They've been there all along. They've been a part of this mythology since the start. And again, one of some of the criticisms that you see of that, and you see it in, say, Zach Hanlon's AV Club review of the episode, or you see it in Robert Sherman's discussion of it in, I think it's I Want to Believe is the name of the book. But you have this kind of idea that, you know, it's just dumping exposition. It's just information being thrown at the audience by characters talking. And that kind of misses what I think Morgan and Wong are actually doing here and why I think the episode is genius. Because the episode assumes that you, as an audience member watching Millennium, and presumably as an audience member who was watching The X-Files as well, because, you know, you're assuming that this is a 1013 production, it exists, you know, while Millennium is very much its own thing and deserves to be its own thing, it is a Chris Carter production. It is very much a sister series to The X-Files. But even if yeah. you're not watching The X-Files, you've watched an Oliver Stone movie, you know, for example. You know how these things work. You know how these stories are structured. You know how this information is delivered. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. And so the assumption when you're watching Owls and Roosters is that you can take that information, just take the bursts and give it to the audience and they will be able to understand and process it much, much, much more quickly than they would have been 20 or 30 years ago. So you get like scenes in this episode that could sustain their own entire episode of television of themselves. You get these universe altering kind of revelations that are just kind of casually dropped in. You get huge changes to the status quo, at least theoretically, but they're dealt with via montage, as, you know, Parsifal plays on the soundtrack, and a character reads from the work of Louis Morris, you know, the, the English and Welsh poet of the 19th century. And you have this idea of all of this information being layered so densely, and in such a concentrated kind of dose, that it's, it becomes almost its own thing. It's incredibly trippy. There's so much happening there, and so much information being provided to you, that again, I kind of joked last week about the experience of reading the internet or getting the internet for the first time in the late 90s being like trying to fill a glass of water from a fire hose that's what owls and roosters feels like and i think that's entirely intentional and i think that's brilliant and i think that it's very much designed to reflect the idea of what and again maybe this is something where i'm speaking from my own personal experience and i don't want to generalize I, you know i don't want to assume that my experience is universal 
But for me, and again, this is probably something where I think the second season of Millennium has aged phenomenally. Because when I first watched this, I didn't see this at the time. I saw this about 2004. So I was already much yeah. more online. Uh, but again, even then, I had this sense of the world is getting faster. There is so much happening. I have no idea as a human being how I'm supposed to process all of this happening. And again, this is not a new sensation. In the 90s when this was happening, I think last week you mentioned stuff like the O.J. Simpson you know, sort of chase that was happening. The 24-hour news cycle that had begun to break in. And again, it's not just the internet, but this huge influx of information that people are being asked to process incredibly quickly and incredibly swiftly. And again, we'll talk when we get into stuff about like conspiracy theories. We get into like apocalyptic theories. We get into, you know what the second season of Millennium is actually about and how it's about it. But like this idea of there just being so, so much information coming at you at such speed and in such concentration that you can't do anything but reel from it. And again, Owls and Roosters is one of the best experiences I've had watching something that captures that sense of the world moving incredibly quickly and me not being entirely able to keep up. And again, you know, if you were being cynical, you'd say, oh, they're just refusing to fill in the blanks. They're not developing any ideas. They're just throwing ideas out there. They're, you know, not not delving into what any deeper meaning of what these ideas might be, how they connect to one another. I think they are. But I think that more importantly, they understand that the density of those ideas is very much the point of the exercise. This is a dizzying and dazzling piece of television. It moves incredibly quickly. There's an incredible number of scenes happening, playing off one another. There's an incredibly large cast working here, to the point where you have people who are basically extras, who are credited in the closing credits of the episode, um, who have popped up a couple of times here and there before, but they're given key narrative beats as well. You have major players who barely have any lines in the context of the episode, but are hugely important in terms of what's actually happening as well. And it's just so concentrated that as a 45-minute episode of television, it seems to almost be bursting at the seams. And that's brilliant. And I say this as somebody watching this in the year 2020, where, you know, in 1997, 98, we couldn't have imagined TikTok or Vine or Quibi yeah. even to pick an example. If you want to pick the latest example of kind of crazy condensing of storytelling down. And I think that it's it's a credit to Morgan and Wong and a credit to the second season of Millennium and a credit to the show as a whole that when you're watching Owls and Roosters 20 plus years removed from its original context, it's still feels fast it still feels light in its feet and again I, I say this as somebody who loves 90s television who adores 90s television but like that's not something that you can say of every episode of say the x-files or every episode of millennium or every episode of star trek even to pick another example star trek was a show or a franchise that i would argue in the late 90s didn't always keep pace and so, like, when you're watching an episode of Star Trek in 2004, where, like, Rick Berman has refused to kind of update the template or to move the template in step with the time, and he's pacing it like it's an episode of television from 1994, you can tell a huge difference. The pacing has just sped up so dramatically in the rest of television those four, in those 10 years that it's impossible to kind of keep pace with that. It feels, it feels like you're watching something sluggish and old. And I mean... When you're watching Millennium, when I'm watching these episodes, these feel fresh and exhilarating and exciting. And that that's just incredible to me. What else can I say? <laughs> um, no, well, I, a couple of things that you picked up on there, which, which are really interesting, because I'm, I'm a stickler for 
that type of storytelling anyway. I love the uh, the Donald Sutherland scene in JFK, for example. I love. I actually do like the Krishkal scene in Redux as well. Yeah. But what I think in a couple of things that you've mentioned there about the the way that, that things have sped up and you know, likes of for example, Two Fathers One Son. In, in One Son, it's basically another expedition dump of expedition dump. Sorry of um, what the colonization is going to be and, and colonization is about to begin because of all the things that have been set in motion and Cigarette Smoking Man delivers that. And that's like the end of the world type thing. You know, the apocalypse is coming. This is it now. The, the colonization is about to begin. Although, you know, it's a false start in, in, in the, as we find out. But um, the likes of the way that JFK is told that it's very kind of like, this has happened, this this has happened, putting the pieces together and stuff. On the flip side, what you're talking about with, with this episode is that the... There's so much information that's in there. And you're right, obviously, there's a lot and a lot to take in. And I actually love that. I actually love the, the idea of make, filling your own blanks in and going away and thinking about it and thinking about it 20 years later as well, which which is an amazing piece of uh, of television to be able to have that feat of being able to do that. The way that the episode, for me, I really enjoy it, just from what you're saying there, is that as it's not doing this, but it almost feels like it's a clarity. It's, it's, a, it's a clearing of the decks of... This is what we're building up to. The apocalypse is coming. Millennium is here. This is what the Millennium Group is. This is what's happening. These are the sex in between them. There is um, all people who are against this um, thing with the Odessa kind of thing. But it's all being brought into this one massive mash of everything going on and colliding together, much like real life is. You know, yeah. there's, like real life doesn't just go by the by the dots and you go from one to two to three. You'll go to one to 19 to 22. Um, or whatever they may be, and I think that Millennium does this episode in particular does this really well. And as you say, we mentioned this off air that you know it's set pieces, but the, one of the things that this set this does is that, and I've seen this a lot in um, like Star Trek Picard recently, and you know it's, it's happened in many a TV show, but the editing in here has done really well yeah. as well. There, different conversations are happening, but the conversations are related to each other. Yeah, and I, I really like that, and the exposition, the way that the exposition is dealt with it doesn't it just feels for me that it just it's just rolling it's propulsive and it keeps going it keeps going and then on the flip side you get towards the end and all of a sudden it just slopes right off slows right yeah. down to literally silence and then builds up in this massive thematic emotionally charged um ending and i think that the overall that that for me is why i would rate this as you know as highly as something like um Somehow setting up behind me, which I'll obviously we'll talk about later in the in the season, few episodes time, and as highly as something like Doomsday Defense or Jose Chung's from Outer Space for me, that it's one of those episodes where I'm I'm literally it's going to be a nine point five, you know, around that level for me, and I think it's it's just an incredible piece of television. And it's worth noting actually when you mention that again because you you do mention that that kind of that sequence with Mister X, um, not that Mister X, the other Mister X and JFK with Donald Sutherland, but you also yeah. even that kind of like that exposition that you get in the X Files. And again, the difference between what Millennium does and what I think you know makes Millennium controversially, Darren might say, better than that is that Millennium understands that like that fire hose of information that's coming at you and you're trying to fill a glass from isn't even just one fire hose it's all yeah. several different fire hoses firing at you in different directions and you kind of mention it there it's you know like number 18 number 22 number 17 and not being able to process all that and come together 
And again, I think that's very, very much intentional. And again, it's something that feels even more poignant now, even more kind of like relevant now, because we're living in a world where people live in these bubbles, these social media bubbles, and there's no way to tell what's actually true, what's yeah. actually happening, because everybody has their own different account of what's going on. Everybody has their own different sources of information. Everybody has their own different frame of reference, and they're constructing their own subjective reality from that. And the episode is like, that's that's the thing when you mention where it goes silent and then it builds up again. And it, you, you mentioned that storytelling by theme, and, the, and I think that that's actually something that I really, really adore. Millennium was one of the first times, the sexiest Millennium was one of the first times I really latched on to that idea of storytelling that is anchored more in theme than in plot. Because obviously, like, you can argue about how much or how little of the actual plot mechanics of this episode come into play later on in the season. Spoiler, you know, the true cross may or may not come into play at the end of the season. But that's that's not really important to the episode because the episode isn't really about the, you know, the true cross. The true cross is arguably a MacGuffin. And in fact, actually the closing minutes suggest that it's a particularly cynical MacGuffin it's a decoy MacGuffin it's a MacGuffin of a MacGuffin because nothing actually matters because nothing makes sense because nothing is true there is no truth a character observes at one point in this episode but again you get that idea that it's form how the story is being told, that density of information, that cacophony of exposition very much reflects, you know, not just like what the episode is in terms of plot, but what the episode is about. And again, thematically, at the risk of sounding incredibly pretentious, because that is exactly what happens at the climax, where you get, you mentioned that moment of silence. And then Parsifal starts playing. And then this kind of Wagner-esque kind of opera builds. And you have, and again, not we're going to assume you're listening to the podcast, you've seen the episode. If not, run out and watch the episode. <laughs> um, but if you have, the entire point of that sequence is that these characters who had been existing at odds with one another and in this cacophony of yelling and shouting and not being able to understand one another and not being able to agree with one another and having different point of views and believing different facts and and pursuing different truths, in that moment when they go silent and they build, they are, and I apologise for this, but I think it's justified, finally working in harmony together. All of a sudden, they are literally all singing from the same hymn sheet. And you end up with this moment that is absolutely beautiful and building. And so you have this idea. And again, you know, we mentioned the use of the man with no name. Sorry, the horse with no name um, in the previous episode in, in Owls. But the use of music here as well does the same sort of thing where it's like, trying to construct order out of chaos that's that's very much what you know if you're boiling this down to a single idea to a single concept like owls and roosters is about trying to construct order out of chaos out of the chaos of the world in which we live and the characters manage to do that and there's a question about the legitimacy of how they manage to do that whether they manage to do that in a way that's ultimately successful or whether it's just kind of pointless and just temporary and everything will end up lost the, the moment the things start to fall apart again. But you have this idea that how the story is told and constructed is as important as what it actually contains. In that, like, you know, we're going to go through scene by scene. We're going to talk about stuff like Odessa. We're going to talk about things like Clear Night, for example. We're going to talk about the, the schism within the Millennium Group. And all that stuff is fascinating. And there's a lot there to unpack. And I think it's all chosen very carefully and very intentionally. And I'm not at all suggesting that Morgan and Wong were just like throwing tomatoes at the wall and seeing what's stuck. I think all that stuff is there intentionally. But what I mean is that like the way in which it's told, the density of information, again, you could arguably see this as an extension of what Morgan and Wong did on the previous season, the X-Files, when they joined in the fourth season. And you start to see them pushing the boundaries of what you could do on the show and the relationship between the show and its audience in episode
episodes like Music the Cigarette Smoking Man, for example, The Field Where I Died, and even say Never Again. And this very much feels like an extension of that, where it's as much about how the episode is constructed, how it flows, how it unfolds, its rhythm and its tempo as it is about what the characters are actually saying in terms of the lines that the actors are uttering. Again, we talked about it last week when we described it as a triumph of mood and atmosphere, and it very, very much is. It's an episode of television, and again, this is something that was startling to me when I watched it in in 2004 for the first time. It's a lot more common now when you look at prestige television, when you look at things like, say, The Sopranos, when you look at things like, say, Game of Thrones even, to pick what would seem to be a completely arbitrary example when talking about a second season millennium. But you have this idea of theme of tempo and of construction being as important to the story that you're telling on television as what the characters are actually saying and what you're actually showing and i think that like that's that's what i find really beautiful about it it's, you kind of mentioned this idea of it it being very similar to that kind of you know mr x vibe or that sequence from from you know two fathers and one sons where the cigarette smoking man lays it all out and, and it absolutely is but it's very much it's like 20 different versions of that overlaid with one another, each playing a second out of sync with one another in order to throw you off and keep you disoriented so you have no idea what's going on. And this is what's most impressive about that is that, like, that's easy to do. You can very easily write a conspiracy that doesn't make sense. The beautiful part is making it make sense in spite of that, is making that lack of sense seem like it was a conscious choice and making that lack of sense part of a larger observation or larger argument, a larger point that you're making as a whole. And that's kind of a level of transcendental kind of brilliance. And I'm sorry, I realize I've gone completely off the deep end here, but yes, I love this episode of television. But it is it is a moment of kind of brilliance where it's like, you make something that is incoherent, that is, you know, almost incoherent, that is incredibly difficult to parse, that makes perhaps absolutely no sense internally, but somehow in that lack of sense, in that chaos, in that disharmony, in that disorganization, it all fits as part of the larger story that you're telling. And so you end up with that most surreal thing, most incredibly difficult thing to write, which is, you know, chaos which makes perfect sense. Absolutely. And I think that um, before we, we um, delve deeper into the episode, I'm just going to search out my copy of Parsifal because I think it's going to take us about five hours to get through this. <laughs> uh, but yeah, let, let's uh, let, let's take a look at that now. From from what we've said there, it, it is a really dense episode. We're going to go through scene by scene and, uh, you know, we, we no, mo- no doubt might jump around it, it as the conversation takes us. But uh, I think to, to ground us, I think it's really good to uh, to at least uh, attempt going by scene by scene. For, there will for be particular... chaos. There won't be any there order. Be chaos. There won't be any order or narrative purpose, but there will be chaos in our tribute to this episode. We will try to start off organised and then entropy will, will be released <laughs> into the system. And then before we know it, we're in chaos. So uh, well, let's see. Let's dive into the episode in a bit more depth. We start as we left the last episode. Now, in you know the ten thirteen universe, likes of like say Tunguska or or any any double party that you can think of. We every day we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. 
At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Generally go to somewhere else. Like you could have you could have gone almost like to, say, the ritual scene, for example. But here, we're going straight to where we left it off with the, uh, as you mentioned, my little joke last week with the mouse clicking, that we do have, we go straight to what what's happening with Frank and his little altercation with who he's, he's led to believe are the Millennium Group. And, and after that gun battle, we venture to see Lara, but uh, she, in the last episode, was dealing with quite a few issues with regards to her thought of whether or not she could be, be an owl or a rooster and... You know, later on, she'll discuss this with the old man. But at this particular time, we get this, isn't what I was saying, uh, talking about before, this this foreshadowing of the fourth, fourth horseman and the time is now. Uh, what did you make to, to the Lara scene then in, in the fact that it's, um, it is very much foreshadowing what's going to happen in in the, the season finale. It is, and, and not at all like in a kind of a conscious shouty showy off kind of way. Like if you weren't looking for the horsemen, so to speak, you probably wouldn't spot them. Um which is, you know, and again, given where Laura's arc goes in the season finale, not to jump too far ahead, it actually does feel like very clever, very poetic foreshadowing. But what I really love about that scene, what I my big sort of like this is amazing kind of moment in that scene is not the actual kind of vision itself, which is, you know, very intense. And and one of the things I like about Laura's visions is the production team work hard to differentiate them from Frank's visions. So it's mm. not like, you know, again, there's no sense of this one-size-fits-all solution, which again is, is thematically relevant because the whole point of Owls and Roosters is that there's no one-size-fits-all conspiracy theory. There isn't one gang out to rule the world. There isn't one syndicate or consortium out to control the fate of mankind. There are lots of different ones that are competing and they all have their own... Th- you know philosophy their own perspective and their own motivations so it makes sense that you know frank's gift is not the only variation of a similar gift in inverted commas and laura has her own cognitive abilities that she perceives in her own unique way and the episode does make it clear that the way that laura has her visions is very different from the way frank has and again you can trace that back to episodes like monster as well but it's very 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 obvious here but my favorite moment in that sequence and it's absolutely brilliant it's a very small moment it's a moment where laura's watching the match sort of burn yeah. and you have the music building you've got mark snow so the sound mix going absolutely crazy the close-up on her eyes the close-up on the kind of the can the light burning down to her fingers and again that's that's that wonderful sense of well it's a fuse you know we're counting down to something something bad is going to happen you know there's only so much time left before we all get burnt horribly but in the middle of that you get this wonderful smash cut to a mid, uh, you know, a middle distance shot of Laura sitting at her desk, and it's completely silent. Um, and it's notable it happens at the point where Thomas J. Wright, the director, takes his first credit as executive producer as well, which I thought was a nice little touch. That's one of those ah, 
I am directing this episode uh, moment. <laughs> yeah. But you have this wonderful juxtaposition and it very much kind of cements this idea. And again, this is where the difference between the X-Files and, and Millennium in terms of its storytelling, in terms of how they tell their stories, is that on the X-Files, there's never really any doubt that the paranormal thing is happening. There's never any doubt. There's never any moment where you're watching the episode and going, well, Scully's going to be right this time um, because you know that, that the laws of the show mean that Mulder's going to be right. There's always going to be a monster. There's always going to be a ghost. There's always going to be a conspiracy. And the conspiracy will probably, you know, nine times out of ten or 99 times out of 100 end up involving... A a man smoking a cigarette. The thing about this, and what's so brilliant about it, is that you have this really intense, subjective experience of Laura's vision. What she's seeing. And at one point, literally through her eyes, when you're staring at that kind of like the match burning down. But even the focus on her eyes and the reflections that she's seeing there that make it very clear that, you know, you're seeing the horses in her eyes. You're seeing through her eyes. You're seeing what she is experiencing personally. And then you cut away and you get, well, no, wait, actually, this maybe this thing isn't happening. Maybe this is all in her head. Maybe she's just gone completely insane. Maybe she, she is. Maybe she's right to be worried about the state of her sanity. Because to an outside observer, to that camera positioned, you know, two or three meters back from her when she's sitting at her desk staring at her back, she just looks like a normal person sitting down working at a desk. There's nothing to indicate that something profound is happening or something you know that has some cosmological significance is unfolding. This is just something that is entirely inside her head. And again, this happens, we mentioned it last week when we talked about owls, but it happens throughout the second season of Millennium as a whole, is this ambiguity, um, this sense of are there mystical forces at play? Or are characters just having nervous breakdowns? Is there some guiding hand at, at work kind of shaping the narrative as it's unfolding? Or is that something that we would just want to believe because we want to believe that there's some purpose to the chaos that's happening? And again, to, to do that in that sequence so skillfully and so quietly and so unsettlingly. And again, it's because you have that, and again, it's a classic horror movie trope, but you have that going from loud to silent incredibly quickly, which is kind of the inverse of how how you imagine a scare working where normally like a scare is like oh it's quiet and then it's loud um whereas that cut is like it's loud and then it's quiet and somehow it being quiet is more unsettling and scarier than if the loud kind of screeching screeching noises had continued so i actually that's one of the things that's what i really love about that because it gets at that sense of you know maybe something is happening maybe something is trying to talk to laura or maybe laura is just having a psychotic breakdown and again, you could argue that kind of happens with Frank as well when he ends up in that shootout, although you know as an audience member that the other guys have guns. So he's very much not in a shootout. He's very much like not having a nervous breakdown. He's very much defending himself. Although again, if they're sent by Odessa, you wonder, are Odessa trying to recruit Frank? If so, would they try and kill him? Are they just keeping his eye, an eye on him? And then if so, did Frank force the confrontation by going out there with a gun and waving at uh, it at them and kind of forcing the situation to turn into a shootout? when it would not have otherwise as well. And again, that ambiguity that hangs over the episode where you're not entirely sure what is happening, why it's happening, who wants what to happen versus, you know, what the characters want to happen and what actually happens. And that kind of juxtaposition, the gap that exists between, you know, the various competing factions and the various desires and the various perceptions of what's happening as well, um, which is, again, is ambitious and incredible. Yeah, I mean, the, the between, like, Lara kind of having... This uh, this debate in the previous episode and the fact that she's 
um, you know, she's kind of like fighting her, what she, what she's doing as they spiral out of control at this point. And, you know, in the last episode, it was kind of like, well, she's reading this book on hallucinations and stuff like that, that she's questioning herself. And with this one, it's almost like she's lost just her a trail of thought completely and internally affecting her and things like that. Um, the actual words I put on my notes, which which is interesting that you, you used pretty much all of them, was uh, juxtaposition of the silence in the room yeah. and the point of view of the camera being the audience is what I put. Yeah. Um, you know, so so just being able to like, as you say, the inversion is is definitely a, a, a thought that that comes to, comes to mind, and it is off putting. It is um, not without precedent because obviously we've had. Uh, the Curse of Frank Black is a perfect example. And I know they've used music before with, like, as you say, the House of No Name. And these are staples of Morgan and Wong. But the, the use of silence and the use of, um, you know, using that as a as a performance is is incredible. And I, I always like that style. I think the, the style really shines through. Yeah. Um, and which it would come through in a lot more um, as we get later into the episode. The the next couple of scenes, um, although, although I did say we're going in kind of order, but what I particularly like about this, and I mentioned this earlier on, is the we've got this conversation between Catherine and Frank and Peter and the Elder, and the editing that, that goes in between the two and the discussion that Frank has had with uh, with Catherine and the, uh, the the fact about the issues of lying and things like that and Peter's withheld withholding of information, you know, letting Frank do what you know, Frank was one of the extraordinary candidates and he doesn't want to see you and stuff like that. Um it always edited really, really well. But let's dive into that in a bit more bit more depth because there is a lot going on here and there's a lot to do with this the whole series arc. And as you mentioned, the elder is someone that's not really featured that much, but he becomes a really relevant part of the episode as well in this just in this scene. And it's also a good scene for Peter as well because Peter's been on the periphery of um, is he good, is he bad? We've had this conversation last week about his confrontation with Frank and we're getting the candidacy kind of issue now. We've had Luminary and everything is colliding into one here and uh, you know there's there's new new elements being brought in, but there's also old ones and there's also the reconciliation of Catherine and, and Frank and, and the, the final kind of conversation before we pick in later in to the to the scene where he, he basically um you know she basically says that she loves him so um so what do you make to the these two these two scenes put back to back and again it's, it's that level of kind of density that we talked about this level of kind of layering of exposition upon exposition upon exposition characters talking and talking and talking and being cross-cut with one another but not only cro- being cross-cut with one another kind of cross-referencing one another because obviously like the point of reference for the discussion that's happening between Catherine and frank you know, isn't just the conversation between the Elder um, and um, Peter Watts. It's the conversation between Frank and Peter in the previous episode, where you have lines yeah. that Peter, sorry, that Frank delivers to Peter, which are amount to, you know, you you lied to me. It's I never told you a mistruth. You didn't tell me. You knew and you didn't tell me. And that's equivalent to a lie. And you have that turn back on Frank here where Catherine says not telling me the truth is tantamount to a lie and you have a sense that they are having literally the same argument that you know Frank had with Peter 
Catherine's having with Frank now and the idea that these two moments are juxtaposed with one another but also obviously the conversation that the elders having as well because again this is that thing about the order from chaos and like the the reason why I think owls and roosters work so well is because despite the fact that you know there is that density of information because there is that exposition and I mean we'll get into some of the exposition later on when we talk about like the particulars of say what the owls believe or the secret history of Odessa and all this information that's delivered incredibly quickly um, and very rapid fire and sometimes almost dismissed out of hand as quickly as it's mentioned in the first place but like at its core there's a solid kind of theme or kernel of aboutness to the episode that remains consistent. The episode, the two-parter holds together because Morgan and Wong never lose sight of what the episode is about in like capital letters, which is about this idea of the breakdown of the family, the disillusion of the family. Because you have that even in the conversation between Peter and the Elder, where you're cross-cutting between the two conversations, but it becomes very clear through cross-cutting, through this juxtaposition, that they are actually the same conversation. They're actually, at their core, the same conversation unfolding between four different characters in two different places, possibly at two different times as well. And that conversation is about the breakdown of a family. I joked last week that, you know, later on in the episode, we're going to have a scene with the owls and roosters that plays like a sequence from Marriage Story. But that's incredibly intentional here. Like, you look at lines that people like Peter and people like the Elder are delivering, where they're talking about this disunion you know, which is very much yeah. suggests the breakdown of a marriage. Or the elder telling Peter, I understand your motives, but we cannot lie to one another, which is at the same time that you cut very quickly to Frank asking Giebelhaus to place a car outside Catherine's house without her knowledge. And you have this sense that, like, what they're actually doing, even though they themselves don't know it, is that they are talking about each other. They're talking about the same thing. They're having the same conversation even if they don't realise that it's the same conversation. It's only from our perspective as an audience watching this cut together that we realise that actually what's happening within the group is the same thing that happened between Frank and Catherine, which is people who believe in largely the same thing, who have largely the same set of values, who hold largely to the same set of truths, who have worked together or been together for years and trust one another fundamentally, but have what seems to be an incredibly minor difference of opinion, who seem to have reached a point where there's just this small, one irreconcilable difference they can't reconcile with one another, and then that all falls apart. That is all it takes for everything to come crashing down kind of around itself, for this family, for this household to tear itself apart. And, like, that's the thing, is that, again, this is the thing that runs through the sexy season millennium, where, you know, even though Catherine, as a character, doesn't always get a lot to do over the course of the, se the second season, although I think to Morgan and Wong's credit, they do try continuously to involve her and to find a way for her to be active in episodes like Luminary, for example, and, you know, A in Arcadia Ego later on as well. But you have this kind of idea that, you know, that throughout the season, this is a story about a family breaking up and that being the end of the world. And the idea, again, I, I kind of mentioned last week when I talked about Owls, the difference between the X-Files and Millennium is that the X-Files starts outwards and builds inwards. So it's all about like this idea of becoming disillusioned with the generation that won the Second World War, the greatest generation. And then that becomes a story about, you know, a, a man and his father and the kind of the irreconcilable differences that exist between them because this is about a generational conflict. It's about us looking back at the people who won the 
the Second World War and going, yeah, but did you really make a better world for us? Whereas Millennium, on the other hand, is built from the inside outwards, where it's like, well, this is a divorce. This is what a divorce feels like. So the entire world feels like a divorce. And that feels like the end of a world because this is your life. This is the end of of what you have lived as your life. This is the end of a part of your life that, well, what you've assumed to be the whole of your life, just coming crashing down around. And so what we do is we extrapolate out from your own personal experience of a divorce. And again, not to get too personal and not to get too sordid or too gossipy, it is notable that like then Morgan, as he was writing the second season, was going through a similar experience, has talked about how that maybe did shine through in some of the writing and everything else kind of bleeds out from that. So it's almost like, you know, the group... This whole civil war that's happening within the group, this grand scheme to smuggle the True Cross out of Syria involving murder, mayhem, explosives, private jets, conspiracies, prophecies, you know, stars colliding in deep space, biblical prophecies, is all just a reflection of what it feels like for Frank to have lost his soulmate. Um, And then kind of like building out from that. And I kind of love that. And again... It's something that is so incredibly difficult to do because conceptually these things are so radically different because you're, you know, on the one hand you have a fairly standard family drama and on the other hand you have, you know, biblical prophecies, conspiracy theories, the end of the world. But finding a way to make those things connect and intersect with one another, particularly in an episode that is as dense on exposition as this one is an incredible feat. It's it's absolutely stunning. And again, triumph of editing, triumph of writing, triumph of directing, and triumph of performances, if we're being entirely frank. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, to, uh, to, to, uh, to bring it into focus, I just, I've, I've picked up two lines. Um, you mentioned about the, you continue to lie to me line, but directly after that one, um, Catherine says, and this is just to like sort of really kind of focus on this, is that it says, um, you try to keep our, your, our family safe and together by withholding the truth from me. And now we're apart. If this is happening again, haven't you learnt your lesson? Meanwhile, it flicks straight over into Watson, who says, it's difficult to know the truth, even to recognise the truth. But I don't believe it's a lie to reserve information that could create catastrophic consequences until I understand it for myself. That's talking about both. As you, you... Every day we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At US Border Patrol, Protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You mentioned there about the, the dis- dissolution of the of this marriage and the... Um, you know, the end of the world apocalypse that, that's coming in. And those two lines absolutely pristinely look at that and show, just showcase how much they they split between the two of them. You could almost like swap several lines in in that sequence and it yeah. would make no, you know, not that it's it would make no difference. Yeah, that's it, exactly. 
Like you could trade Peter's lines with Frank's, for example. You can imagine a Frank reading out Peter's lines in response to the conversation you have with Catherine. And again, that that's beautiful. Again, that's that's kind of like, and again, it's one of those things that if you are a cynic and if you're not on the, the episode's wavelength, you're like, well, that's actually really pretentious and cynical. And it's like, oh, look at how smart I'm being as a writer. And I'm like, I actually really like when writers are that smart. So I don't I have no problem with it whatsoever. But it's kind of, it's really elegant. I really like that. Just before we move into the next bit, I'm, I'm just going to mention it just so we know where we are is when the Elder talks about uh, their concern if the results show that the wood to be a fake, <laughs> because that becomes really interesting towards the end of the episode. Yeah. Um, and if it is, where's the real one? And what does that mean for Millennium? So that's we'll park we'll park the bus on that one. We'll come back to it. But um, we do head over we'll, to... We'll uh, cross that bridge when we come to it. We'll, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. Yeah, absolutely. Stick a um, nail in it. Brilliant. Um, okay, so but we, we we need to go over to Paraguay and look at some Nazi banners now. So do we? Um, <laughs> yeah, we do. This is the podcast <laughs> I agreed to. Um, <laughs> wow, podcast radicalized so fast, Kurt. Um, um, but yeah, so we we get the bloodstained Nazi banner, um, which is displayed on the wall, and there's the piece of wood is in the glass cabinet. Obviously, Axman has appeared in the previous episode. And he goes on to say, I have one last enemy to defeat, but after 75 years, um, centuries really, we have won. So they, they're, they're already claiming victory um, at this point. This kind of like takes the episode into a slightly different realm. And uh, we've talked about some of the, the imagery that Frank had last last week. This is obviously um, bringing into focus Odessa, really. I know that Odessa come into it a bit more later on. What do you think of the introduction of Odessa in this episode and these two episodes and um they weren't particularly named in the hand of saint sebastian but as i mentioned last week that this story pretty much came out from that from that story i think glenn morgan actually did say that so what do you make of the introduction of odessa and the uh the, the kind of um the, the battle that, that's been commenced here in the century centuries worth of war a couple of things actually that are quite notable about Odessa, and again, this speaks to the, the kind of the level of research that Morgan and Wong did, and how much Millennium, the second season of Millennium, and again, this is not anything particularly new. The X Files does it as well, but the way in which it draws from conspiracy theories and kind of you know the obscure kind of like references and kind of you know little cult arcania almost to a certain extent, because obviously you know Odessa. I, and again, I want to be very careful how I phrase this. I was going to say, Odessa is a thing that really exists, but that it doesn't, and that's largely the point. But Odessa um, is a conspiracy theory that actually exists in the real world, and the idea is that it's very much as outlined in the episode here, the idea that Nazis managed to set up these kind of shell companies that allowed them to escape, or a lot of them to escape justice at the end of the Second World War, and to create new lives themselves internationally. And what's interesting is that while obviously those things did happen, and Nazis did manage to escape, and the SS did organize various parachutes and escape routes for prominent officials as the war came to an end. It hasn't ever actually been proven that an organization like Odessa actually existed in any real sense. It's very much, it is a conspiracy theory in the same way that something like, say, the Syndicate is a conspiracy theory in the X-Files. And again, this gets into something that is is interesting about kind of like the way in which Millennium uses um, conspiracy theories as compared to the X-Files. Because again, you mentioned that Bloodstained Banner and later on we find out what the, the Bloodstained Banner is the bloodstained banner is you know tied to that famous kind of nazi coup or attempted coup and it's kind of become a symbol of the movement and again that the obvious parallels between that 
and the way in which the True Cross is treated, where it's this almost kind of holy and religious artifact that has huge symbolic and possibly supernatural value to it, and that it will allow the people carrying it to kind of walk to victory and to overcome the hurdles that are placed against them. And kind of the idea that, you know, this idea of belief and how important belief is and the idea of history, again, history having an architect and that kind of being shaped. And again, an idea that interests Morgan and Wong, because obviously you have episodes like, for example, Musing for Cigarette Smoking Man in the Four Seas of the X Files, which kind of spoofed this idea of, you know, history as something that is written or something that is planned or designed or mapped out by great men, shaped by great men, as opposed to lesser men who just sort of stumble along the great man theory of history. And what's interesting in terms of this and the use of Nazis, and it's a very small thing, but again, it fits with this kind of recurring use of kind of conspiracy theory and motif, is that this emphasis on, say, um, you know, and Peter mentioned it last time, last episode as well in Owls, where, you know, Hitler had people out looking for relics of the True Cross, and he had people out looking for these occult artifacts. And a sense in which, like, the history of Nazi Germany, you know, obviously the actual military history and the cultural history are very important and they're very documented as well. But you have a lot of uh, fascination with the idea of kind of Nazis and the occult. And I mean, Raiders of the Lost Ark um, is probably the most obvious example of that in terms of popular fiction. But you'll see it absolutely everywhere as well. And I mean, there's a really great book that was written by is it nicholas uh, godrick clark the occult roots of nazism which is one of those great uh, fringe histories of nazism again this has turned into a really weird podcast uh, but if you are looking for fringe histories of nazis nazism i quite like blitzed as well which is about drug use and amphetamine use in the third reich but the occult roots of nazism basically looks at these kind of theories and that people have about this idea of like conspiracy theories about nazism but also the use of supernatural and hitler's obsession with say religious artifacts his pursuit of say, the Spear of Destiny and the Holy Grail and things like that, which are perhaps overstated uh, in terms of histories of the Third Reich, or in terms of Arcania, in terms of, you know, sort of like conspiracy theories about the Third Reich. And one of the things that uh, Goderick Clark argues about this obsession uh, with the occultism of the Third Reich is that if you believe in that stuff, if you invest in the story of Hitler actively searching for the Holy Grail or the Spear of Destiny, or even in this case, the Blood Banner and the Blood Banner having mystical powers. It allows you, as somebody hearing that story or processing that information, to write off Nazism as something supernatural or something larger than life or as something that exists beyond the realm of human experience. It's something you know, otherworldly to a certain extent, something magical, something superstitious. And again, you have this kind of idea that in doing that, you render Nazism and the horrors of like the Holocaust as something yeah. that are outside of our responsibility and our frame of reference as human beings. They become something otherworldly and almost Lovecraftian as a result. Something that isn't us. Oh, Hitler never could have come to power if he, you know, wasn't driven by these demonic or mystical forces or whatever. And and therefore, as a way of doing that, it allows you to excuse or to kind of make exception for the fact that, no, Hitler was a normal human being and the forces that brought him to power and the people who were complicit in that were regular human beings and regular economic factors and things that happen in the world and we as human beings are capable of doing terrible things and the world could fall apart and fall into chaos the holocaust could happen the second world war could devastate europe not as a result of any you know evil plan or any supernatural force but just because human beings are the way in which we are and i think that that you know it's a small part of this episode um but that very much reflects the way in which Millennium treats conspiracy theories. 
and again, the X-Files does it as well, but the X-Files doesn't really commit to it because in the X-Files, there is a single conspiracy theory. There's just one conspiracy theory. There's yeah. like the syndicate and they are working towards one singular goal. And that goal is colonization. Now, again, watching the X-Files, it may not seem that way because you're like, hey, wait, what, what are they doing with the bees? What are they doing with the virus? What's going on now? Why is F Emasculata going on here? Wait, why is he in Young at Heart? But generally speaking, in, in the X-Files, it's one single story. It's one single narrative. It's one single purpose. And what I like about Millennium is that it kind of builds off the kind of postmodernism, so to speak, of, you know, the the episode um, Musings of Cigarette Smoking Man, which basically said, well, wait, what if you take this to its logical degree? What if you take this conspiracy theory at face value? And what if you assume that not just this conspiracy theory is true, but every conspiracy theory is true? And they kind of end up piling on top of one another and kind of contradicting one another. So, that, like, you know, it's not only... You know, you can't comfortably believe that the world is being run by the Millennium Group, because in this episode, it turns out that actually the Millennium Group itself doesn't have a coherent internal belief system. It falls to pieces just as quickly as any other group of people does. Again, that joke about having, you know, three people can keep a secret if two of them are dead, that sort of thing. But where you put two people, three people in a room and two of them will immediately start plotting to murder the other one. The idea that, you know, human beings are inherently tribal and fractional and that, you know, conspiracies don't really work because people are incapable of keeping secrets and working together and collaborating in a way that makes conspiracies possible. And so kind of as a result of that, you have this idea that, well, yes, if conspiracy, if we assume that conspiracy theories are true, that doesn't solve anything. There is no overarching master plan for the universe because if conspiracies are real, the people within them are going to end up breaking down and conspiring against one another, are going to end up plotting against one another. There's going to be different conspiracies organizing at different points with different philosophies. And again, you have that juxtaposition of Odessa and the Millennium Group. You have this idea that Odessa... And again, you, you'll see it later on in the season with the trust when you get to the season finale. But you have this idea that like there isn't one singular truth. There isn't one single conspiracy that understands how the world works and provides a clear framework for understanding it, an ordering principle to make, you know, all that cacophony, all that noise, all that shouting to bring it together and harmonize it into one singular cohesive truth. Instead, there's a wide variety of kind of different ideas and people holding different viewpoints. And even within individual sex, people holding different viewpoints from one another. And the idea that, you know, this doesn't make sense, this doesn't work, that, you know, even if we accept that conspiracies can be true, that doesn't account for anything. It doesn't make the world make any more sense than it does. And I will say, actually, one thing that I found very interesting re-watching um, Owls and Roosters, and one thing that's probably aged much better than I thought it would have when I first watched it, and even when I watched it five years ago, is the idea of Nazis, secret Nazis turning Americans against one another and basically causing, you know, almost apocalyptic crises, which is an idea that has perhaps aged a little better than I think even Glenn Morgan and Jim Wong would have expected when they wrote the episode. Yeah, I mean, you, you could touch upon kind of the right-wingism kind of happening right now, can't you, in, in some ways as well. But I think the uh, the things that you mentioned there about the, the Nazism being almost human culture just wants to deny that that happened or accept that that happened and by putting those supernatural aspects to it, as you say, it gives it that otherworldliness. I think that's, that's a really good point and it is difficult to accept the atrocities. I know we talked about the Nuremberg stuff last week didn't we uh briefly um having having that not really understanding well not understanding but not really accepting it or you know until you physically see some some of the stuff that's happened there 
with your own eyes or even read some of the concepts and the, the trials and stuff like that to really get to know what what we are capable of as a, as a species is is uh, is horrific and, and and difficult and the fact that people uh, you know the fact that the spiritualism and the uh, you know the overworldliness as as you put it is uh, is really something that to, to bear in mind and the fact that you know it it wasn't that it was something that you know very very kind of serious and uh, you know something that we need to own really going moving forward a couple of things that you, you mentioned also which will move into the next scene but before we do that just one thing I wanted to mention about the Frank and Catherine situation it's only a little it's peppered in there a little bit and um, we'll get into their conversation a bit later on. But I did almost feel that there was also almost like a courtship happening after this this little um, speech, uh, after the uh, the actual discussion that they have in the earlier scene, because um, Frank leaves that note for Catherine on the windshield. Have you seen Miss Knight's artwork? And and to me, that was almost like a almost like a courtship of like look for it for yourself, find the truth yourself. But also the fact that you know we're seeing a new development in Frank's and Catherine's relationship there. There's indeed, and again, one of those great, it's a really great, well put together sequence where she does see the artwork. And again, it's one of the things that I think captures that sense of, you know, what the episode's about or this idea of kind of processing information. The idea that like one of the things about conspiracy theories is that it's like the human, the way the human brain is wired, apophenia, the idea that we try to recognize patterns uh, in data. That's the way the human brain works. And again, there's evolutionary reasons for that. Like when we were kind of primates, when I'm wandering around in the wilderness and the jungles or the forests or whatever, you know, we needed to be able to know that the rustling sound, you know, in the trees as birds flew away, that that was a tiger before we actually saw a tiger because that's yeah. how we survived. We with that pattern recognition, that ability to go A and B. I don't need to see C. I understand that what C is because I can infer it from A and B. And the idea that like as human beings, when we take information now, we process it in that way. And again, this is something that has aged very, very well. Is that like sometimes our way of processing that information isn't entirely accurate and doesn't always reflect reality. That's why you end up with conspiracy theories where you look at things that are happening and you find a way to fit them all together. And the only way that you can make them fit together is, is to construct an entirely insane narrative that loops them all in all these facts and kind of connects them like dots that end up looking like some sort of Lovecraftian monstrosity. Um, and again, one of the things that I think the episode covers rather well though, is that that moment with the artwork where Catherine sees the artwork hanging in Miss Knight's office and you get this incredibly quick blink and you miss it moment of Frank turning off the lap of the computer, of her seeing Frank turn off the computer. And like, if you're watching it, you can barely make out that uh, A. Hitler circa 1940 uh, illustration there. But it's there quick enough that you can see that she sees it and she sees the painting there. And you have that brilliant moment of kind of like recognition and realization that comes from here are two facts that seem to be unrelated to one another. And you mentioned that idea of courtship as well, because the idea is that Catherine needs to make that connection for herself. And again, you have that moment where she accuses Frank and she's like, you need to tell me what's going on. And he's like, I don't have anything but suspicions. And again, while I uh, like I think, you know, Catherine's right. There's there's no debate. Catherine is entirely right in this argument. I also understand Frank's perspective, which is your wife, you know, your ex-wife or your, your separated wife has just got a really nice job that she's deeply enjoying. She comes home from that on like her second day. You you cannot under no circumstances can you go, look, I don't have any proof, 
but trust me, I think your boss is a Nazi. That's not a conversation you can have with somebody. And I completely understand why Frank's like, I need to maybe ease this in. I need to maybe, you know, trust but verify. I'm not really going to ease us into that your boss is a secret Nazi conversation right away. Maybe we'll just sort of do some legwork on it. And I kind of like that idea that her seeing the photo on his computer and her getting the note prompts her to see the picture and associate it with the computer and put those two facts together. And again, that idea of kind of like how we process information and how we gather information. And again, I think that's a key theme in terms of the second season of Millennium as a whole. And again, you know, you can tie that into the development of the internet and on all the sort of stuff that was happening in culture around the same time. And even that idea of narrative acceleration, where it's just like, boom, boom, boom. Like Catherine is basically putting together a story from three separate points of information. She's interpolating a narrative from three points of information that she has. And again, making that part of the story is is very with the lucky land slots you can get lucky just about anywhere this is your captain speaking uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky no no nothing like that it's just these cash prizes add up quick so i suggest you sit back keep your tray table upright and start getting lucky play for free at luckylandslots.com are you feeling lucky no purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Very clever writing, I would argue. Well, we, we are getting to the point where we have the uh, the meeting on the, and the failure to agree, and... Both episodes pretty much are revolving around Johnson's murder with um, with the obviously the Nazis and, and Gunschwein, I think he's called. Yeah, so this is the, the the two differences between between the two factions of the Millennium Group, and uh, you know they've got this evidence that the Elder um, has, and they have the conversation, and things like Protestants and, and Catholics are brought up as well, which. You know, I'm I'm not going to um, talk about. I, I'm sure I'll, sure I'll leave that to people that's more informed. Um, but uh, but yeah, the, um, what did what do you make to this 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 scene where it's it's basically it's it's how the Millennium Group are going to work through their differences, isn't it? Effectively, and and how they come about that, and uh, you know the reasons why they they're, they're failing to trust each other, which which echoes a lot of what's what's gone on before, really. It is. And again, this is one of the scenes that has aged remarkably well. And again, this is one of the things where watching it in 2020 is slightly different from watching it in 2015, which is slightly different from watching it in 2004. And again, I wonder how much of this was on Morgan and Wong's kind of mind when they were writing it. How much of it is just kind of, well, human nature, we extrapolate from human nature and we end up with something that ends up feeling rather prescient. Because you have this idea of the group. And again, I am certainly not somebody who is in a position to talk with any authority about like Peter's analogy to the Catholics and Protestants in Northern Ireland. So I'm not going to do that. But yeah. I joked about this being very similar to like a marriage counseling scene. And it absolutely is. It's very much like that kind of, you know, try to sit down and work things out before we bring out the lawyers. You know, we're going to try and go into arbitration before we bring out the lawyers and kind of sort it all out. But you have this wonderful discussion about how it's all about power and all about control and about who has power within a group and how you assert that power through authority and by the construction of a particular narrative. So the idea is that, you know, within the group, if the roosters are proved to be, you know, 
crowing about nonsense, then the owls naturally assume power because the roosters will have lost all credibility. And you look at this and you see stuff that feels much more relevant now than it did five or ten years ago when I watched it. And you look at, like, factionalism and the way in which groups work. And again, I don't want this to turn into the Darren Talks Insane Modern Politics podcast. And I'm not going to do that too much. But you look at things, and you can look at them on the left, you can look at them on the right, but where you have this idea of kind of factionalism and breakdowns that occur in communications. If you look at it on the right, you can look at things in, say, the Republican Party, where you have the breakdown between, you know, Trumpers and never-Trumpers, but you have, like, you know, the three parties, the three wings of the party, the, you know, the foreign policy hawks, the fiscal conservatives, and the social conservatives, and them all having their competing values, and them all trying to assert their own narratives and their own control of the Republican Party. You look at things on the left, for example, you have people like, you know, people who are very focused on the idea of kind of recruiting working class right, uh, working class whites, or it's kind of the, the centrist wing of the Democratic Party, the, the establishment wing of the Democratic Party, and then the more activist base and kind of what they want as well within that, where you have this idea, you know, and you have even like the, the elders saying this, you know, nobody would be sitting in this room if we didn't broadly agree on the same principles. I can't understand how, despite agreeing on those same principles, it's come to this level of division and disagreement. And yet you look at things. You look at things like, for example, the Republican primaries back in 2015, 2016, from which Trump emerged, where things got incredibly heated, incredibly bloody and incredibly battled. And you look at things like, say, you know, the Democratic primaries around the same time with, say, Bernie Sanders and and Hillary Clinton, or even the more recent one with, again, with Bernie Sanders, but also (laughs) again with Joe Biden. And this debate about what happens and how these people, how people who have these, like, what are seemingly the narcissism of small differences in that, like, for example, if you're one, if you're in the Democratic Party, your primary objective should be to defeat Donald Trump in the next general election. But you look at things and you have these huge disagreements over what are nominally in the context of, like, larger political trends, small disagreements, which are, you know, questions, you know, they are big issues, and they are issues that you're going to have to resolve, and they are issues that it's important to discuss, but they are somewhat less important than the big issues that are going on, or the big existential crisis that you're facing. You know, the, the countdown that is happening in a lot fewer than 665 days at this point uh, in the electoral calendar. And again, I, I'm not... You know, this isn't Darren Talks Politics. I'm more using it as an example to illustrate the idea of how these groups work. And again, you can have it even in smaller groups. You can have it in social groups. You can have it in friendships as well. But this idea of when you bring people together and you have these little bubbles that exist and you have these small differences that end up becoming huge schisms within groups. Because again... This that idea of chaos that runs through the episode and this idea of chaos that runs through the season, which is this idea of communication is fundamentally difficult and arguably impossible. Like, it is very hard for somebody as a human being to make themselves completely known and completely understood to another person, to share that much of yourself with a person. Again, the analogy of marriage is very, very important here. But again, it's very difficult to clearly understand, to clearly articulate yourself, but then also to clearly perceive another person at the same time and the idea that there's so much involved in that so much room for miscommunication or misunderstanding within that that the idea that people can ever actually agree on anything at all no matter how small or how basic almost seems like a kind of a a miracle um statistically speaking so you have this idea that like and again it's a very cynical it's a very dark it's a 
arguably very pessimistic view to, to a certain extent within the second season of Millennium, which is the idea that the end of the world is in some sense rooted in that breakdown of communication, in that inability of people to understand or to perceive or to be cognizant of one another and to reconcile their differences and to understand that what they have in common is more important than the differences that exist between them. And I think you really get that in the disagreement between the owls and the roosters because, you know, again, the people manipulating them are literal Nazis. There is no situation where people in that room should be going... Well, hey, no, no, you're the one to blame. No, you're the one to blame. Rather than going, actually, wait, sit down. Let's let's think about this and let's talk things through. And again, it's notable not to jump too far ahead. But like when you get to the climax of the episode, once the people in that room understand that they've been manipulated and understand that they can trust one another, the problem that they're facing is resolved incredibly quickly. They're able to dismantle Odessa in the space of a single Godfather-style montage. Literally all they have to do to stop this problem, the problem that has taken up the bulk of this two-parter, is to sit down, talk to each other, and listen to one another with an open mind and understand that they're working with common purpose. That is all that it takes. And yet, despite that, things get so absurdly catastrophically out of hand that the group almost implodes, which again is incredibly, incredibly bleak. And that's even before you get to the question of what are they actually fighting over? What do the test results that the Elder has and he's not sharing yet in the plot, what did they reveal about what the group is actually fighting over? Are they fighting over anything important whatsoever? Spoiler, they're not. Um... Oh man, uh, you've got you've forgotten one vital piece of information about the 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 resolution um, in the fact that you know it does also take Peter Watson a balaclava because you've got to have that. <laughs> I do, I'm in the middle of the jungle. Nobody's going to see me, but I'm going to look stylish. Um, I feel I, I, part of me like again is this bad taste I feel like I can get away with this because I'm Irish but I do think like Peter maybe Peter's frame of reference for Northern Ireland wasn't ideal in this situation. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, yeah, it was that. It's probably, yeah. If you, if you look at it in that ill-fated, if you take those two uh, comments and put them out of context, <laughs> yeah. it doesn't doesn't pose well, does it? No. <laughs> um, um, yeah, I mean, the other, the other thing just to um, to look at the, the talk from a slightly different angle is um, the Millennium Group are meant to be one group. There's factions within those groups, but they are one entity. And the comment that I particularly liked and pulled out of it was the... The idea that, you know, the no one will believe us if you are wrong and the fact that we may well be right, but no one will listen to us. Um, you know, the six decades thing with, um, you know, as I say, if if, if the owls are, are, are the ones that actually are right and it is still the dark of night, but the, the roosters have crowed too much, then, you know, they, their reputation and their, their the way that they could try and portray that and in, in a real-world situation fails to pass. And I think that that's really interesting. Um, from that point of view as well. What's even more interesting than that, and again, we're probably jumping a little bit ahead in terms of both the episode and the season, but to make it entirely clear, neither the owls 
nor the roosters are correct. The intent, like the second season millennium makes it very clear that neither the owls nor the roosters are correct about the nature of what's going to happen at the end of the season, which makes their argument here and entirely intentionally and entirely thematically relevant. Like it's not a plot hole. It's not a gap. It's not a mistake. It's a thematically coherent statement. They are literally fighting over nothing. Neither of them is right in this argument. And that's a good point to move on to the next scene, which is in with uh, Jim Ford. Jim Ford is a is a vital character in, in this role. And you mentioned that, you know, we, he does have an untimely death and we don't see any of it. And I, to be fair, because I hadn't watched this episode for a while, I did see him drive off and I expected the car to explode. <laughs> and, and, I, and, I complete, and I completely forgot that it didn't. <laughs> well, you do get so, that close-up of that kind of brake light on it as well. Like, that's very much yeah. like a, we're expecting car go boom now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, it doesn't go boom. No. Um, but uh, but yeah, what I, what I particularly like about this, I mean, this is something that that harks back to a few things. A bit of, in some ways, also kind of like the Legionesque element to it is the the your job offer for Frank yeah. and the 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 fact that you know Clear is there and Frank starts to um, you know relinquish all his all of these things that he's been dealing with and you know the, where he subjectively is, um, but he's obviously doing it because he knows. The, the situation but um what did you make to that i mean it's very kind of um as i say alistair pepper for example in season one um is, is there probably a good case in point but what did you make to that scene oh it absolutely is it's very much like a deal with the devil sequence it's like a come and join us sequence and again that's the juxtaposition of you know the idea that odessa and millennium and the millennium group maybe aren't so different in inverted commas as much as you can't be so different in inverted commas from literal Nazis. But the idea that, yeah, you have this idea. And again, this is one thing that I really like about the second season of Millennium is that the Millennium Group's interest in Frank is kept deliberately ambiguous in that, like, there's a sense that what they're doing is not entirely wholesome. They're likened repeatedly over the course of the season to a cult. And like, again, you're watching the episodes and you're seeing how they treat Frank. And a lot of how they treat Frank is very similar to how a cult recruits members. And so it's nice and it's fascinating to see that happen here with Odessa, who are very explicitly bad guys. They're not ambiguous. It's not like, no. oh, Odessa... Well, you know, I mean, sure, the racism is pretty bad, but they have some good policies. No, it's like Odessa, pretty, pretty terrible. Really, pretty, pretty, pretty terrible. But, like, you have this idea of Clear Knight making that offer to Frank, which is very much analogous um, to the situation, to the offer with the Millennium Group, which is like, hey, come consult with us come work with us you know you could be a part of us you know we kind of we'll find a way for you to fit in you can be useful we can provide a vision or a guidance to you as well while you're doing it and it is very much again this is one of the things where you have the difference between the first season millennium and the second season millennium where the first season millennium has this kind of carter-esque view of evil where evil is like literally satan but it's this idea of kind of like going out in the world and being changed being morphed the black oil transforming you you becoming something different than yourself you being infected and you being changed and the second season you have this idea of evil as something that is much more ambiguous and is much more kind of tied to the idea of well actually what you really want is you don't have to actively be evil just make yourself comfortable just get cozy just accept a cushy job just uh, take the paycheck that will allow you to kind of live in a nice style that will keep you and Jordan comfortable just be a part of this system you know and you kind of have this sense of 
the idea that, you know, that that's kind of how they want to get to Frank. They just want to get to Frank and maybe take him out of play. Because, again, that's the argument that you had in, um, was it uh, The Curse of Frank Black? Where the argument wasn't, come join us and be evil and it will be great. It's, no, just take a breather. Sit down. Be with your family. Enjoy the time that you have with your family. All we're asking you to do is nothing. It's easy. Everybody does it, which is one of those great lines. I absolutely adore that line from Mr. Curse. Mm-hmm. The, uh, you know, it's easy. You can do it. Most people do. Um, which is very much like this idea that evil is something passive. It's something that you kind of accept that not being good, that not actively trying to be a good person is tantamount. Again, that, that, that Edmund Burke quote about like all it takes for evil to prevail is for good men to do nothing. And again, this idea that, yeah, that clear nice as this kind of massive corporation happy to take frank on and payroll and again trying to conspiring to reunite their evil plan seems to consist of getting frank and catherine back together that's the sum total of their evil plan presumably because that means that frank then won't be with the millennium group because the millennium group has been treated largely as a surrogate for the family that he lost and again you have that in the previous episode in owls where frank's like sorry where peter's like you left your family but you didn't leave us so the idea that you know maybe if they can lure him back to Catherine, they can lure him away from the group and therefore prevent him from joining. I do wonder, though, like in that sequence where Frank is like, OK, I'm going to go full Nazi here. Um, intercut with those sequences, like from Triumph of the Will and stuff like that, just so we're entirely clear what he's doing. I kind of mm-hmm. wonder if there's a moment where, you know, Clear Knight just sort of blinks and he goes, sorry, read the room wrong. <laughs> yeah that, that would be that would be something that's else. a little awkward yeah um yeah it's just a little bit just a little bit the way that the way that that, that he's um he's, he's offered that job i i think he's done that before um it's, it's not out of character for him to go into situations like that i know he's done a bit more with a bit more levity earlier on the season in goodbye charlie yeah where he goes to speak to the um the social worker and uh, and, and he, he lays off all of his problems, which is a uh, which is a great scene in that episode. Yeah, it's very hard to be that have that sort of levity when you're dealing with literal Nazis. To be fair, uh, well, yeah, yeah, it's slightly a slightly different take on the same kind of. Yeah. <laughs> the I'm wondering about the thing. Mel Brooks sequence of that would probably be something to behold. <laughs> the old man was featured earlier on through the keyhole with Lara at the very beginning of the episode. This is when we he comes into um, into focus, and you know he's very sorry that he's woken Franklin, but uh, you're going to need some sleep, <laughs> which I think is an amazing line. I love that line, and 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 Lara obviously again, you know it's it's it, this episode we just mentioned it there the, the lack of levity, but Lara tries to 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 liven things up a little bit by saying it's a thing with him. There's no locks and doors where he comes from, and Frank basically says you know he's not with the Millennium Group anymore, but. The old man, the wise man that he is, says, you know, he's, as far as I can see it, we're the only thing left of the group. We've briefly touched upon this scene just at the beginning of the of the hour, but um, there's there's a lot of information in here, but there's a lot of, uh, you know, kind of thoughts and, you know, kind of like a sort of a, a, having to sit down and, and taking stock of what's been happening. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? 
Sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Over the, the course of the two episodes in this, this section. And, uh, you know, they, we get Lara ex, um, having her, the two worlds colliding and the fact that she was, um, she, she was, um, pulled over by the owls but then she says but these these signs these uh visions that i'm getting that i can feel it coming there's a feeling within there my, my mind is saying one thing but my body you know my, my actual soul saying something else effectively um so how did you think that the these these few intercut scenes here with them and i will say just before you start to talk talk about them is that i absolutely adore the tracking shot um, where it goes past Frank Lara oh, the and, uh, and the old man, yeah, I do absolutely yeah. love that tracking shot. It's a great, um, but what do you, what do you make to the actual content within within the this scene? I mean, like one of the great things about this scene is that it's one of those things that is one of those do not do this rules of drama, which demonstrates yeah. that these are kind of like things that people tell you not to do in drama are things that when you get good at writing and when you get confident and when you know what you're doing, you can break those rules in an interesting way. Because this scene has like a number of key beats that are basically invalidating themselves within the same scene. So you have Laura explaining the central philosophy of the owls. And again, up until this point, you know that the owls just, the owls don't believe that the millennium's going to happen when the clock strikes midnight, you know, on on January 1st, 2000 or 2001, depending on how you count the millennium or consider the millennium to happen. The owls think that there's going to be a secular event, um, you know, at some point in the future that is just going to happen to fall roughly around the millennium, not exactly around the millennium. And up until this point in the episode, you don't know exactly what that secular event is. And it's, it's ambiguous up until the point in the episode whether the owls know exactly what that event is. But then Laura tells you what that event is yeah. and it's interesting because it's a big ream of exposition it's it's a surprisingly detailed account of what the owls think is going to happen the collision of these two stars sending a shockwave through space that's going to fundamentally alter the fabric of the universe and it's going to fundamentally alter the universe as we perceive it when it arrives on earth in about 60 years and again that that nice numeric kind of thing where throughout the two episodes you have the number six recurring over and over and over again the episode takes place 666 days or the, the owl starts six hundred. 166 days before the arrival of you know the traditional millennium but even the owls believe that that shockwave is going to reach earth in about 60 years anyway but you have laura outlining this theory and then immediately going but i i don't actually believe that i think it's going to happen sooner which is kind of again something that you don't do as a writer something you're not supposed to do in inverted commas as a writer which is spend so long telling the audience something and then immediately tell them that it doesn't matter at all. And you have that happening as well with Johnson. Where, like, Johnson is dead at this point in the story. As you point out, like, Johnson's death is a large kind of spur in terms of the plot that's unfolding over the course of this two-parter. And so logically, you would assume that the characters understand who Johnson is, what his motivations are, and where he's coming from. But even then, you have this discussion between Laura and between Frank about what Johnson actually believes. Because, you know, Frank describes Johnson as a futurist, 
in the Book of Revelation sense. So he's, you know, he thinks that Johnson is a rooster. Um, Laura had her experience with him as an owl, as a double agent. But it's also been suggested that Johnson was working undercover as a rooster, infiltrating the owls, infiltrating <laughs> the roosters in order to gather information and feed it backwards. And so you have that moment where Laura says, and I think the exact quote is, I have no idea what Johnson actually believed. Oh, no one really knew what side he was on. And there's a sense that he's dead now so nobody is ever going to know exactly what johnson was up to exactly who he was playing and exactly what his motivations are they're fundamentally unknowable there's no way of resolving this and again that's something that's absolutely beautiful because you know as a scriptwriter your job is to impart information to the audience it's built on this idea that the audience trusts you to tell them a story and that what you're telling them actually matters and what you almost have in Elves and Roosters is the inverse of that where the story is constantly telling you that everything it's told you maybe it doesn't actually matter which should be enraging and should be infuriating but it's actually very much the point of the episode and again it's done so skillfully and kind of with such art and again the the script is so good the performances are so good and the direction is so good that it doesn't it isn't it it works in a way that it very simply shouldn't and that whole scene that extended scene between the old man between laura and frank is a key example of that because this is one of those scenes where you don't really have that much cross-cutting going on compared to the rest of the episode you don't have something to cut away from and to in order to maintain momentum and again like one of the reasons why the episode works as well it does in terms of simple logistics is the fact that morgan and wong have a huge cast and so they can constantly cross-cut they constantly have different things happening with different characters in different locations involving different stakes so that even when you get to big exposition scenes and again you'll see it later on in the sequence where characters explain who who or what Odessa is that they start cutting between conversations taking place in order to explain and outline it so that you don't have one character delivering a solid you know 10 minute uh, monologue but even at the climax where you know Millennium strikes back against Odessa you have characters that you're able to cut between you know unfolding kind of multiple plots to take care of the various wings of Odessa to take care of Clear Knight to murder the henchman in his car in a fit of dramatic irony but also even to make sure that Hess's sort of you know that's right that uh, Axman's uh, you know Paraguay mansion explodes you have a large enough cast that you can cut between them and what's notable about that scene between the old man between Laura and Frank is that it's not it's just one scene with three characters in it talking relatively constantly and delivering large chunks of exposition and it still works which is a testament to again to the cast and to the writers uh, and to the director right as well who's very very good yeah i mean you talk about the scene later on and uh, i think that, that that's kind of where we're going next with the uh, vagrant's parsifal uh, and the old man explaining you know we've mentioned there that you know the old man sees the the three of them as what's left of the millennium group that they're the only ones seeing sense in a lot of ways uh, that they're seeing through the they're seeing the bigger picture there they don't have the uh, they, they've the context they've got is an objective context whereas the the group themselves are fighting among themselves and they're very kind of uh, you know sub- subjective and you know they're all tangled up in their own opinions but um the old man tells the story of of, of part of about the old man who's brought to the site of the holy grail and and that brings in this conversation with the uh, with Adolf Hitler and and that that aspect to it as well, which also opens up the the conversation with Frank and Catherine and the um, the eventual kind of acceptance that Catherine does love Frank and uh, 
and it, it, it almost like, as you say, mirrors what had happened earlier in the episode where you know we've had these couple of scenes now which have developed in and we've had the continuing um, conversation with the three of them. But now we're going back to this kind of style of the old man telling the story, Frank talking to Catherine and, and processing that information, isn't it really? And, uh, and how, how all that comes together and the fact that this story about the, 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 the account of, of the, uh, of the reasons why he likes Wagner and the fact that uh, the way that Adolf Hitler made these pilgrimages, which you talked about earlier on, which is a, uh, is a really um, kind of another thread that, uh, that is just jam packed into this, into this episode. Yeah, and again, it's it's worth noting that even while this is happening, even as this is unfolding, you have a crystal clear theme running through it. Because that conversation about what Odessa is, about Axman, about his relationship to the group, about how long this war has been waged, and this kind of grand mythical scope of things. And again, it's notable, you know, maybe we'll talk about Parsifal in a moment when we get to actually playing it at the climax. And again, this is a nice bit of foreshadowing. But this idea that, you know, that it is this epic, larger-than-life story and this saga that's been unfolding time and time and time again. And again, you have this idea that Axman has contextualized this battle that you know Odessa is waging against Millennium as something that has been going on you know for centuries really, um, which you know obviously predates the Third Reich and predates Nazism and kind of lends a sense of like the arc of history to it. But like even while you've got all this epic scope happening, you get this wonderful small human touch from the old man who is a character who doesn't really have a name he doesn't have you know a background you don't really get much information on him but in a line one of his last lines in the show he explains to frank his own history which is that his family were wealthy poles and they were murdered by axemen and in that moment he explains he's already seen the end of the world for him the end of the world you know isn't the unleashing of a biblical plague it isn't God reaching down from heaven or rapturing everybody up. It isn't even some wave of a distant star colliding and blowing through the cosmos and altering our sense and perception of reality. For the old man, the end of the world was the loss of his family. And again, that's a theme that the second season just keeps hammering again and again and again, consistently and thoroughly. And again, even in episodes like, say, A Single Blade of Grass, which may not be the best episode of the season. But even then, you have this idea that the loss of a family, in that case a tribe, is equivalent to the end of the world. And you have this sense that, like, even with all the insanity that's happening around it, even with all the secret Nazis, even with, you know, all these crazy, you know, apocalyptic belief systems going on, the show and its tensions can always be boiled down to that very simple, very relatable set of stakes, which is, what does it feel like to lose your family? Well, it feels like the end of the world. And that's a strange, it's a very focused, very pure, very kind of narrow perspective. But it means that while it's laser focused on that, the show can kind of build out and can play with all these big ideas in kind of interesting and kind of, you know, ways in which I hadn't seen a television show play with these sort of ideas before. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the, the curve of this as well is um, is something that I really do appreciate with this scene as well, that, you know, the, the sheer weight of using that word Auschwitz yeah. and then um, I've seen the end of the world and then then cut into silence is uh, is probably the, the heaviest weighted silence that I've seen in, in any TV show, really. You get, you get like, sort of um, high-stake... Um, episodes of say 24 where 
there'll be the silent clock, for example, is probably probably the first thing that jumps to mind. But having the weight of of what we've been talking about for the last hour and a half about Nazis and uh, you know the Nuremberg trials and things like that, to just have that line and then immediately follow it by silence, and to um, to give it its due, this next bit as well is is where. We, we, as I say, we're going to talk about Parsifal now in, um, in the way that it, it develops to the run of the end of the episode. But the the silence is, um, you know, is, is meditative in, in in the way that he, you know, he has seen the end of the world. We we have seen that with him. And before we get into the next section, there was a couple of things I want to bring up. First up, I did a count of how long the pretty much the silence or this scene lasts. Um, which is three minutes and around four seconds That's somewhere quite around impressive. there, which is a long time of um, you know. There's obviously little noises and stuff of people going upstairs and stuff yeah. like that, but pretty much there's no um, you know dialogue, apart from yeah. dialogue. There's no dialogue. There's no uh, you know. There's, there's folly work and whatever, and that's it. And it's three minutes and four seconds, give or take. Um, but also the fact that um, just one thing before we get into that kind of the the depth of that is the the vision that he has. Is um, you know in in the past we've kind of alluded to this in midnight of the century where you know Lara gets those type of visions Frank doesn't um, you know it, Frank's mother gets those type of visions but you know this is this is the old man getting this vision um, so what did you make to the kind of like the turnaround that they've they've done with just before the moment of death that they he gets that vision. I mean, that is the end of the world for him in a very literal sense, even beyond the loss of his family and that that's where he dies. Mm. Um, And so it makes sense that, you know, he should see something there waiting for him at that point. And again, there's there's something very powerful and very effective in that. And again, it kind of gets at something which is, is a nice segue into talking about the rest of the episode, which is this idea of death and rebirth of like the end of the world and again this is something that i think the second season does consistently and thoroughly and it's a theme that it hammers again and again and again and through that it kind of like which feels appropriate given what the theme is but it's this idea that the end of the world isn't a singular event it isn't something that exists objectively the end of the world isn't something that you know you and I and all of our listeners will perceive at the same time and in the same way. The end of the world for me will be different than the end of the world for you, which will be different from than the end of the world is experienced by any number of our listeners. And the second season comes back to this again. It kind of suggests that the the end of the world is constantly happening. It's happening somewhere for somebody at this moment in time. It happened for somebody else a moment ago. It'll happen for somebody else a week from now. The end of the world is not a singular kind of unifying experience. And that's that's kind of like the central point of the episode, I guess. The central point of the season is that the end of the world is not a singular unifying event. It doesn't bring all of us together. We don't all experience the end of the world as individual. Uh, sorry, as, as a kind of a collective group. We experience it ultimately as, as separate individuals. And you have that kind of paradox at play where the old man has experienced the end of the world and experiences it again here even though we know that it's not the same end of the world that the roosters expect to see, that it's not the same end of the world that the owls want to see, that even when we're rewatching the season and we know what's coming at the end, 
it's not the same end of the world that Frank will experience. And it kind of like that. So you have this idea of kind of subjectivity even then, where the angels, which are kind of like what Laura experiences, and there's this ambiguity about whether the angels are real, as in like are objectively verifiable phenomenon, or if they're simply an expression of Laura's own subjective experience of what's happening and her attempt to process that into something that makes some sort of coherent sense to her. And there is that sense of ambiguity here as well. Is is there actually an angel there with the old man in that moment? Or is that simply his way of processing the end of his existence? Is that something simply his way of kind of seeing it? Is there something more profound at work in the universe that's looking down and smiling on him at this moment? Or is this simply him realizing this is the end? This is this is how I die. This is where my journey reaches its conclusion. This is where I leave the world. This is the second time that I have experienced the end of the world. Um, and again, I think that there's an ambiguity there, which is very difficult to pull off because if you do it badly, it seems like you're hedging or you're cheating or you're doing a cop out or you're avoiding kind of like actually making a, a coherent argument or coherent statement. But I think the way in which the second season does it is very clever and very smooth and very elegant because that ambiguity becomes a point of itself. It becomes a key cornerstone of the argument. That ambiguity is the whole point of the exercise. It's not a way of deflecting from. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Moment, if that makes sense. Uh, it also serves a, serves a purpose in, in the narrative that it puts into the mind of everyone around them that, you know, that, that it gives them a chance to clear the slate in, in some ways that, you know, um, um, this is what happens in the very next scene with Watson, the fact that he's he's realised how much he's treated uh, both Frank and Lara at this case, that, you know, he calls them my colleagues, my friends. And early in the episode, he, he wanted to go to Frank, but was told not to by the elder. So the, and the, and he's saying this, this kind of rebirth, it's kind of picking up and this theme is now picking up that, you know, the end of the world, the, the end of the old man, the head of the Millennium Group is now is now no more, has moved on. And where and the group is in tatters, you know, and I think the realization, the objectivity of, of the group and of Peter, um, with the death of the old man really brings into focus um what they need to do and how they need to do it. There's actually a really good line in that sequence where Frank or sorry, where Peter talks about this disunity within himself, which is quite yeah. an expression. Like that's how fragmented and disconnected and kind of how wildly kind of like separated we are is that not only are there factions and kind of schisms within the group, 
the world is so crazy and so schizoid that there are fraction, factions within the self that, like, individuals can be shattered and broken and at war with themselves in the, as a reflection in the way that the group is. And you have this idea of Peter talking about being at odds with himself. And again, that that's that wonderfully kind of almost cynical, brutal, bleak perspective, which is, like, if I can't be at one with myself... If I can't have that unity within myself, if I'm not in harmony with myself, what what chance do I have of being, you know, at harmony with somebody else, of being in communion with them, of understanding or connecting them? You know, the world is so fragmented that we can't even be sure what we're thinking, what we're seeing, what we're understanding, what we're perceiving. And again, that the question that you have, that wonderful juxtaposition with Laura as well, where there is that question of, is what she's seeing really there? Or is that her being unable to process what's happening to her? And again, the sense that Laura is, you know, has a disunity within herself, to borrow that language. And so you have that kind of like wonderful sense of, disconnect and chaos and absurdity and kind of like nonsense basically this idea that the world doesn't make sense because we as individuals can't make ourselves make sense which is again a wonderfully bleak perspective it's like of course people can't organize into conspiracies of course people can't solve problems that affect our societies of course people can't make the world make sense because people can't make themselves make sense. It's it's very much a distillation of one of the core themes of the two-parter and arguably the whole season, I would argue. The, the Peter Watts thing is, uh, you know, he, he's he's lost faith in a lot of ways. And, and you, we've mentioned this before in previous podcasts that, you know, there's no there's no surprise that the type of character who plays in, in Lost as John Locke, and, you know, you can see a lot of that in here. And, and he seems to have his true believer back um, at this point is... Um, his understanding of the Millennium Group. The Millennium Group has been reborn effectively yeah. um, during this ritual, and then obviously his uh, escapades <laughs> <laughs> as he goes on. I would love <laughs> to read that book, "My Escapades in Paraguay" by Peter Watts. Yeah, that, yeah, that, that's the that's the book of the, that's the book title without a doubt. Um, but yeah, so so what did you make of this? I mean, I mentioned it at the top top of the episode that you know we go through this silence, and then we just um, from that silence we we kick in. To the the Parsifal theme and uh, you know the way again it's it's cut really interestingly as well. I thought the edit was done really well at this point and uh, you know and then eventually we get to the very end of the episode where the the, the Millennium Group is reborn effectively. That Frank gets the, gets into the um, logs into um, the computer and it's the six hundred I think it was sixty four days left. Yeah, and uh, and we we can leave the very end bit um, to the very end. But um, what do you make of the the, the ritual um, element to the to the end of the show. Yeah, I mean, well, the ending is absolutely beautiful because it's it's that stuff that I was talking about where the episode seems to this point so incredibly cynical and bleak. Like the episode up until that closing couple of minutes, the central thesis point of the episode seems to be there is no way that people will ever understand one another. So why bother trying? Because it will just cause hurt and chaos and suffering and death and destruction. And what I actually like about the closing sequence is that it's very much kind of a refutation of that. It's very much an argument that if people can communicate to one another, if people can make these connections, if people can make themselves heard, 
but also listen to others, then they are able to overcome these obstacles. I joked earlier about how easy it is to dismantle Odessa as soon as Millennium starts actually working as a team, but that's very, very much the point of what's going on here, which is like, if people start cooperating, the world is a lot less hostile threats become a lot less serious. It's only when people refuse to cooperate, refuse to work together, and refuse to align that these problems kind of build to critical mass. And there's something very warm and very affectionate and very humanist in that, which I think really holds the kind of two-parter together. Because I think if the two-parter had finished on that kind of really grim, well, why bother trying note, I think it would have been disappointing and disillusioning. I think maybe it would have been a bit grim even for me. But I think that having that moment at the end where it's like actually no there are rare moments where we come together and we work in harmony and we manage to accomplish great things so maybe things aren't as bad as they appear to be maybe there is a way for mankind to come through this which i find very heartening and kind of very warm and it's just enough of a ray of humanism to carry it through the other thing that i think is interesting about the the closing sequence um is and again uh, incredibly pretentious reference coming up here. Uh, but what's interesting about Parsifal, particularly in terms of Wagner's work, and again, the old man doesn't really mention it because his kind of his his own essay on Parsifal has his own particular angle that he's he's going he's exploring it through his own lens of critical dissection. But it's worth noting that Parsifal is one Wagner's last um, opera, by the way, uh, Wagner's last piece of work. I don't even think it's, there's some discussion about whether or not you can characterize it as an opera, I believe. But it's basically his last big body of work. And it was hugely controversial when it debuted because part of what it did was it reconciled Christian themes with Buddhist themes. And again, you can kind of see that in the theme at the end of the episode where you have the old man delivering, the, sorry, the elder delivering the, the eulogy for the old man. And he talks yeah. about, you know, the body begins life in the same position in which it ends and the position in which it will be reborn and again over the course of this conversation you have the idea of the elder being elevated into the old man burying the old man and then the elder going up to the cabin you know the idea of the old man is dead long live the old man and again that idea of how obviously that plays into the themes of millennium where you have the ouroboros as its central kind of motif and central logo the snake eating its own tail and again there's this is something that is strangely hopeful because again i worry when i've been talking about the second season and its theme of the idea of family dissolution and the end of the world and kind of you know the idea that the end of the world you know the world dies for everybody in different ways i think that what's interesting about you know this episode and this two-parter in particular but arguably even the second season as a whole is the idea that that destruction is inevitably tied to rebirth is that yes the world can be destroyed and yes, we all live through our own version of the apocalypse, but we can come out the other side and we can rebuild. We can be reconstructed. We can come out and we can make it make sense. The old man dies. The old man is vitally important to the Lenium group. He's the glue that holds the group together. And, you know, at various points in the two-parter, you know, Peter Watson, the elder, talk about how there's only one man that both factions respect enough to kind of bring balance to the group, and that is the old man. You know, obviously back in Beware the Dog, it's, it's very obvious how important the old man is to the functioning of the Millennium group. So in theory, his loss should be the end of things. 
But it's okay because the elder is able to kind of step into that role. And you have that reading of poetry. Um, it's from Lewis Morris. Um, and I believe it's his, is it the Epic of Hades um, is the poem that I think gets very heavily paraphrased, but I think is being referenced here quite clearly by the elder. And a key central theme of that is the idea that death and rebirth are fundamentally linked in one another. That the destruction of one world is possibly the birth of another. And again, you have this idea, if this is, if you want to read the second season millennium as an extended metaphor for family disillusion or for divorce, you have the idea that, well, yes, it is that. And yes, it is horrible. And yes, the loss of a family or the the death, you know, the passing or the, the loss of a loved one um, is something that is horrifying and profound and will shake you to your core and will feel like the world is coming to an end. But really, it is also possibly the chance for a new beginning. And, you know, again, not to get too sordid or not to make it too personal or too specific, Morgan has talked about this, has talked about how, you know, when he was drawing on that idea of his own divorce for the second season of Millennium, he was also talking about you know, another relationship that was developing at the same time, you know, what would go on to be his second marriage, which by all accounts has been perhaps happier and healthier, at least from his perspective, uh, to Kristen Cloak. And so you have this idea kind of running through the second season that you can have the end of the world, that you can have death, you can have chaos, you can have violence, you can lose everything, but perhaps coming out the other side of it, you can have something beautiful being born. And again, you have that kind of with the, the Parsifal uh, music. And again, that, that Buddhist theme, death and rebirth, that idea of resurrection being tied. You can't be resurrected if you don't die first. And again, it, it's something that is very powerful. And it feels like it has a lot of weight, particularly coming after, you know, the previous, you know, what, 80 minutes of the two-parter being, you know, surprisingly grim and borderline nihilistic in their worldview to have those final 10 minutes go, actually, no, people can get their, their stuff together, their crap together in the end, is is heartening. It, it's it's genuinely heartwarming. And again, because it's a Morgan and Wong episode, it's drawing very heavily from 70s cinema, and it's very cool to see Millennium basically do the Godfather ending. Uh, it's not quite the ending, though, is it? Because we do have the, the final scene where the the revelation of the cross is revealed. What did you make to that to that final piece before we head into the, the mailbag for, for both episodes? Yeah, this is one of the things where it's like, I, I love that I just spent a good, you know, five minutes going, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's really great that it's so optimistic and so hopeful. I'm really, it's really great that after like trudging through this cynicism and this nihilism and this kind of like depressing, kind of like really dark, really heavy piece, that the end of the episode comes together and says, no, this actually means something. Um, to then go to the final shot, which is, oh yeah, by the way, turns out that neither version of the cross that they've been fighting over the course of the episode, so neither the version that was present in Johnson's boot, nor the version that was burnt in Ickman's sort of Paraguay-esque villa were actually the True Cross. It turns out the True Cross never actually left um, Syria and actually just got posted out at the end. And again, this is one of the things that's really grim, really cynical, and one of the things that if you were writing a script from scratch, you would be told never to do. It's basically turned the entire episode into what amounts to be a shaggy dog story, because it's very heavily implied that, like, the idea the cross that everybody's been fighting, murdering, killing, falling to pieces over for the bulk of the episode, from pretty much from the opening credits of, of Owls through to the penultimate scene of Roosters, is actually just a piece of wood that people have decided have an arbitrary value and isn't actually the cross at all. 
And so everything that's been happening as a result of this has been basically pointless um, and has been like involved <laughs> a large amount of death and destruction and chaos with, you know, absolutely no need to do so. And so f- could be read as being incredibly cynical. But again, I think that's kind of the point because you have that moment where the new old man or the elder or, you know, basically Philip Baker Hall receives this package from Syria and opens it and it is the cross and he reads the letter and, you know, the small little note that's contained within it. And it asks, you know, are we any different from the Romans casting lots for the robe of Christ? And it's this idea that, again, I mentioned it earlier and it's worth reiterating, the idea of the ambiguity um, around the group, around the Millennium Group, the idea that these people aren't necessarily heroes. And again, as we it, we mentioned it before on the podcast, we're going to discuss it as we get to the end of the, uh, the second season. And I mean, being honest, I suspect we're going to continue that discussion into the third season as well. But the idea that, you know, know all of this was over a piece of wood over a relic that had some arbitrary value that had been invested in it because these people happen to believe that it has value as a result people have died people have suffered um there have been like wounds physical and psychological resulting from this and a question of like who planned this was this planned was this a conspiracy because like that piece of wood that cross is waiting for the you know the elder as he goes to the old man's cabin does that mean that the old man was planning this all along was this all planned secretly by the old man if so did he plan his own death did he factor on that being a case was he planning on drawing you know odessa out into the open in the hopes of dividing the millennium group in order to bring them back closer together you know in the same way that you know after a fight, you kind of, you perhaps feel a kind of a closer affinity. You're kind of bound together now. You're tied together. Again, that that idea of kind of cult logic applying as well here. And I love that the episode leaves all of this open. It doesn't spell it out. And without getting too yeah. spoilery or too specific, it doesn't come back and clarify it later on either. It's very much for you as an audience member to interpret as you see fit. And you see that happening again at the end of the, like the very end of the episode, where this cross, the actual cross, the true cross, the, the cross, piece of the cross on which Christ was crucified, which has actually been conceptually the cause of everything that we have seen over the course of this episode, ends up effectively being put in a bookshelf like almost uses not even uses a paperweight because if it was being used as a paperweight it would have actual use it's just put at the back of it like buried behind a set of diaries and again not to be too spoilery but it doesn't come into play ever again at any other point in the show and again if you were a writer writing this you get a note from your professor saying this is compo- this is a shaggy dog story the audience are going to hate this they're going to feel like they've been cheated they're going to feel like everything they watched over the past 90 minutes had no value whatsoever but again that's very much the argument that the, ep- the episode is making, or at least the argument that the episode is leaving open to being made, which is asking you as an audience member, do you think that the cross has value? And even if the cross doesn't have value, does the, does the belief of the Millennium Group in the cross having value justify what you've seen, everything that you've seen up until this point? So, you know, and again, it's, it's that kind of very postmodern. It's the idea of, does it have value if you believe it has value? Is truth objectively verifiable? Is worth objectively verifiable? Or is it simply what we agree that worth or meaning actually is? And again, it's the kind of thing where if you were a skeptical or a cynical television viewer, you'd be like, ah, that's a bit much, isn't it? But I'm kind of like, I'm on the wavelength. I dig this. I I think it works in the context of this episode. 
and I kind of love that ambiguity. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. But enough about me, Kurt. What about you? What do you make of that final scene? Because I think it's ambiguous enough to support multiple readings. I think I think it is. I think uh, it's one of those. It's one of those ones where it's um, it, it's the ambiguity. I think is is the the key thing for me. We mentioned Twin Peaks earlier on. I think that. Uh, lines can be drawn between the, the kind of Twin Peaks aspect to the way that Lynch works and the way that Morgan and Wong work in a lot of ways. This isn't quite the same in that way, but there is um, similarities as we get into the finale. But the the, the fact that, that the, the cross is left to, to your own devices, I think, is, uh, is is a really interesting one. And the, the fact that, you know, as I say, it, it, it leaves it with um, the, the thought that if you want to believe that that cross is going to... Um, see us through the, the coming millennium then you're more than welcome to believe that and uh you know just by the mere possession of it like peter says in the first episode that you know uh, until you don't have it which is uh, something we picked up last week um you know it, it's it's only as good as long as you, as you have it which is a bit strange and it's fact that you know you're indestructible till then um but uh but yeah no i i like that I, I do like ambiguity a lot in a lot of um shows and and episodes of tv that i watch and uh, this is another case in point than the uh, the, the the theme uh, music, as I say, the Parsifal stuff, like only adds to the the uh, kind of aspect to it, where it, you know it's more ethereal in a lot of ways, and uh, you know it's more floaty and light, and uh, you know, and the, the you know the true cross of the millennium uh, is written, but you know, and I think that some some of it goes back to what you're saying about the um, you know some things in tv have to be explicitly said because you can't have people lying on on uh, on shows because people will generally believe it yeah. and I, and that, what i do really like about tv shows that don't do that is that it does leave it to your own devices and you see it in um, in lots of tv shows i think i think probably the the one the one show i can think of off the top of my head that did that a lot was um, lost yeah. you know that, that had the aspects of that where you know you, you do you really want to believe everything that you're seeing or hearing? And you know, earlier versions of TV would have done that, but the having this this thought and this process um, and letting you you tend to kind of soak it in and understand it and and take your own um, connotation and your own theory away from it, I think is really good. Yeah, and again, absolutely kind of beautiful. And again, that sense of the music and why the music is important is because. Again, I apologize for this, but it's very much driven by theme rather than by plot or by kind of character where it's like you don't necessarily have to understand or believe everything that's being said. You just need to understand why the characters are saying what they're saying, if that makes sense. You have to understand what drives the characters on a fundamental level, if not in terms of exposition. As a kind of storytelling, you you mentioned Twin Peaks, and Twin Peaks was very, very good at this and very much ahead of the curve. It's a kind of storytelling that really wasn't popular on television until you hit the kind of HBO boom of the late 90s and 
early 2000s when it kind of popularized the ability to tell these kinds of stories for television audiences. And again, I, you know, I, I'm willing to throw my hands up. I'm willing to say, you know, I love the second season of Millennium blindly. I maybe, you know, can't see the faults. I may be, you know, too into it or too close to it. I may be too passionately kind of in love with it to kind of acknowledge that maybe I'm giving it more credit than it's due, but it really, really does feel in some ways like it's a predecessor to that. Like it feels like it feels almost like you're watching something parallel to prestige television, um, but being broadcast on Fox on Friday nights. And again, you, you look at it and you go, I can understand why nobody was watching this in 1997 and 1998, because how the hell do you make sense of this in 1997 or 1998? But I also yeah. think looking at it, even from 2004, when I first watched it, um, and that would have been around the time Lost kind of started or when Lost was just, you know, almost on the cusp of the horizon. You could almost see it coming over the edge of the horizon. But like, yeah. even then it was like, this is this is something that is ahead of what I'm seeing on contemporary television. And even now when I watch it in 2020, I'm like, Okay, this is this is somewhere close to where television is now, which is striking, and I think very much to its credit. Absolutely. Well, on that note, I think um, we should draw close to the episode and dive into the listener feedback. Okay, so I asked the question in the Facebook group, the Yellow House, the Millennium Podcast fan group. Um, I asked a slightly different question to what I normally ask. So I said that we'd be covering um, both Owls and Roosters and um, I asked, who would you identify with as well? So oh. they, some of the answers will have who they identify with. Characters uh, or owls or roosters? Is it like owls or, well, and- I, I, I left it as an open question, but um, people took it as owls or roosters. Um, so what opinions do you have of this two-parter? So Jeffrey Scott says the owls, um, because it's still the dark of night. This episode added more depth and history to the group and two known factions within it. The scoring of America's horse with no name really makes the show more relevant, especially in today's current culture, counterculture, and socially dependent environment. The series was ahead of its time in so many ways. Imagine if they updated it using already tested and vetted source material without mucking it up. Only if only. Oh, if only. That was Jeffrey Scott. So what do you, what do you make to that? Because a couple of things that you've actually said there in today's current culture, counterculture. Um, and the series was ahead of its time. I think those are things we've literally just been yeah. saying, isn't it, really? Yeah, I mean, like part of me thinks that you, you couldn't do it, because if you did it, it would seem very on the nose. Like, imagine yeah. imagine the think pieces. Like, I, I apologise to listeners who had to sit through my are the owls and the roosters the Republican or Democratic Party conversation that we had earlier? I am very sorry for that. But imagine that, but spread out over six weeks in every think piece forum you can imagine. I'm not entirely sure the world is ready for millennium in the 2020s, which is probably for the best. But I I do think that, yeah, I think that, you know, you'd almost lose something in updating it. I think that if you updated it, even if you were to translate it directly, it would almost seem too on the nose. It's one of those rare artifacts of pop culture where we're almost lucky that it arrived when it did, because if it arrived any later, it would seem very heavy-handed and very forced yeah. and very awkward. We've discussed before on the podcast about the um, Brian Fuller's Hannibal, for example, the stuff that it's you know in in a lot of senses some of the ways that that it's filmed and it's, it's actually produced and stuff is was ahead of its time and people have taken that on board. But then you know this this aspect of season two is very much a time capsule, yeah. and I think it's a it's a glorious one at that as well. 
Um, Tony Black has been on as well. Uh, he says the the foxes are about the master <laughs> sleeps. This is who we are. My, my my question would be: Is that how he identifies himself as the master, or as the fox, <laughs> or as the fox? So, um, but anyway, but he's uh, he says a magical, uh, a magisterial two part episode of television, and and about as epic as Millennium ever gets. The whole scene in Roosters set to Parsifal is one of the most beautiful moving montages I have seen on screen. Mythical elegance that is faultlessly st- that is faultless storytelling. Yeah, Brian Decker. He says the owls because I believe Armageddon will naturally take place, and I thought it was a great two-parter. Though I thought Owls was a better episode, one of the best of season two, though not my favorite. It features some of the best episodes. Yeah, I can agree with that. I mean, again, I'm not even sure that this is my favorite two-parter. Not my this is my favorite two episodes in the second season, and yeah. I adore them. Like that's how good the second season is. Yeah, I mean, I think you rhymed off in the Curse of Frank Black with Tony earlier in the season. Just how many episodes in here that you can just rhyme off that that are just amazing pieces yeah. of television, and it just goes to show you how good this season is. Um, and no doubt we'll talk about that in the in the finale. Um, Adam Chamberlain, the two parter is certainly one of Millennium's peaks for me. I really enjoyed the development of the group here and across season two, and see it not so much as a corruption of an original idea as a natural progression. In keeping with Millennium's core themes on the nature of evil and its many faces, to have a specialised group such as this corrupted by narcissism and dogma is not far, is not that far-fetched. Have you read the M. Scott Peck's book, People Are the Lie, for an exploration of this idea? Plus, it feels prescient, um, as you don't have to look too far today to see such tribalism at play yeah. in other arenas. In fact, it's increasingly difficult to avoid. Yeah, I think we kind of alluded to that as well. That is, again, this one of the aspects of the episode that has aged remarkably well in that it feels like you've wandered into Twitter in the middle of that marriage story scene. It's, uh, it's as I say, it goes back to that whole time capsule idea. I just think that, you know, um, you know, there's so much that you can read, so many layers within this within this season of television and within this show as well. Um, and finally, Josh Licata. I apologise if I've um, not quite got your name right there, but it's he says it's an amazing two-parter that really establishes a mythology. Uh, I'd identify with the roosters, I suppose, due to my religious background and the way things seem to be unfolding in the world. So again, in refer- I think reference to this this current state of affairs in, in the world right now seems to be uh, a, a current theme, actually. So I think that that's really, really interesting that people are kind of uh, relating the two, I think. Oh, yeah. I mean, we we, ch- we talked last week about like the, the finale, the second season finale, and how weird that's going to be to kind of cover that in the context we're in now without giving too many spoilers away like again Mm. it's it's the rare season of television that is as good when you watch it 20 years after it was broadcast it is an exceptional season of television that somehow feels more prescient when you watch it 20 years after it was originally broadcast we will foreshadow what's to come in in the finale in just a few episodes time um, yeah, so thank you again, Darren. As always, thank you for coming on. Um, where can people find you online and what are you up to at the moment? Right, so if you are listening to this on the uh, Time Is Now Patreon, 
um, you can, you'll be getting that a bit early. Um, and you will be able to hear me on my own podcast, The 250, which I co-host with the wonderful Andrew Quinn, talking about The Wages of Fear with the wonderful Tony Black. Um, that will have been the episode we would have released the weekend before this episode was released. And the weekend after it's released, Tony will be joining us again, having invited us on his new podcast, The New Wave, to discuss Sorcerer, William Friedkin's remake of that. If you're listening two weeks after the fact, you will have caught us in the middle of our anime in which we traditionally discuss two of the japanese animated films on the list and for that we have the wonderful uh, graham day and the wonderful breed martin joining us this year to discuss a double bill of hayao mazaki castle themed movies yes unfortunately we already ran through all the good themes and now we're just kind of picking through what's left so uh the weekend before you'll be listening to this we will have covered castle in the sky or laputa as it's known in various international markets the 1986 classic And if you're listening to this, and then the following week, uh, sorry, and then the following week, uh, we'll be covering Hal's Moving Castle, um, his other castle-themed fantasy uh, animated classic. So we really hope that you'll join us for that. Um, And you can find me online at Darren underscore Mooney. Uh, You can find me at the movie blog with a zero instead of an O. Um, And yeah, just just come talk to me about movies, about Millennium, about the X-Files, about anything. I'm generally a pleasant sort of guy, depending on what hour of the morning you get me at. It's always a delightful Twitter um, feed. Um, I always look look forward to waking up in the morning to see what's just been going on the night before. <laughs> I think you're giving people a very a, different idea of what my Twitter feed's like. Um, <laughs> uh, well, no, there's, 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 plenty, there's plenty to go around. Wild Nights with Darren, there's, there's plenty of suggestions, <laughs> there's plenty of um, debate, and there's plenty of critical uh, opinions, and there's also um, some retorts from the people on the Twitter sphere. So I would definitely recommend... Um, following Darren because it is uh, it's a, a fantastic piece of entertainment uh, I shall say I will say that my co-host from the 250 Andrew Quinn quit Twitter uh, because apparently when he was following me he described vicariously living my Twitter as enough for several lifetimes <laughs> well, well to be fair you know you know luckily I can compartmentalize so I'm all, <laughs> I'm all right for now uh, okay so you can also find me so I'm on um, Twitter at rmoldrake that's r-m-u-l-d-r-a-k-e uh, you find us on the John Luke Podard podcast, which is the Make It So podcast for the Star Trek universe um, podcast. We're currently covering Star Trek Discovery, of which you were on the first two episodes um, with myself. Yeah, so that was great to talk about that. We've also had, um, you know, I've literally just recorded something uh, with Lee Hutchison as Ooh, well. Lovely. Um, so that's um, that's been great to to get to speak to him. And uh, yeah, so I've, I'm quite busy on the Star Trek side of things. And of course, I'll be popping up on the X cast as well for the Fight the Future Minute, which is where we are going through the um, Fight the Future minute by minute on a daily podcast, which will be airing as this is on now. So, um, oh. so I'm looking forward to having that coming out. So that would be fantastic. Yeah, so that's the best place to find me. Um, and so hopefully yeah, you'll join us there. And also as well, there'll be some clips just on what's been happening on the network. So stay around for that. But until next time, people. This is who we are. Previously on the We Made This Network. The muscles from Brussels. Very difficult times thanks to Bruce Lee, who makes a Or a brain aneurysm. (laughs) That is debatable. Which we're not really sure. (laughs) Yeah, we're like, is he hallucinating? Is he actually seeing Bruce Lee? I don't know. There's a lot to unpack there. (laughs) Yes, we will get to it. Okay. Don't say the C word. And I think Birdemic, it's 
so bad. I've seen like student films on like training on courses and examples and rough cuts that are just simply much, much better than what Birdemic mm. presents you with. <laughs> yeah, they got, they get, well, the students have more budget than they did, apparently. I swear those birds are animated GIFs. And in addition to that, you can tell that they're copied and pasted. Yeah. For anyone who hasn't seen Birdemic, it is basically a shit version of Hitchcock's The Birds, with less plot, less tenseness. It's just shite. But because it's shite, it's entertaining. The Movie Palace. On, on a more kind of abstract point, I guess, I mean, just personally speaking, how important do you think films are to us? I mean, us personally or people generally uh, at a time like this? Um, very important, I'd say. What, what do you think? So I think um, films and classic films especially offer two yep. things in particular. It offers us a way to escape from our reality. And for us and, and the opposite side of that, it allows us to process our emotions Check out all of these shows and more on the We Made This Podcast Network. The Time Is Now, a Millennium podcast, was created by Tony Black and is produced by Tony Black and Kurt North. We can be found on Twitter at The Time Is Now Pod or by searching Facebook for The Time Is Now. We are part of the We Made This Podcast Network, which can be found on Twitter at We Made This Pod or on the website wemadethispod.com. For bonus material and exclusives, check out our sister show, The Xcast, and X-Files podcast, where you can find our Patreon. This is who we are.